Welcome to Week in Horror. All right, you primitive screwheads, listen up. The podcast that deep dives all the films you love. You gotta be fucking kidding. The week they dropped in horror history. We all go a little mad sometimes. With your horror hosts. JL. When a shirtless Sam Elliott with no mustache takes out a, an alligator with a uh, with an oar, that's the kind of movie I'm looking for. Eugene. Ever just casually just like, yeah, so that's probably the best way to go, light someone on fire with gasoline. Alex. It would not be an original lineup if I didn't have fucking technical <laughs> Johnny O. Now it's not an Amityville. Or wherever it's Amityville. And Aaron. They, they got manure to work with and nothing grew from it. <laughs> News, trailers, trivia, special guests, and more. You're going to need a bigger boat. Live show every Wednesday, 7 p.m. Central at YouTube.com slash Week in Horror. Welcome to prime time, bitch! And wherever you listen to podcasts. One by one, we will take you. Week in Horror. <laughs> Stay scared. <laughs> welcome, welcome, horror fans. It's Wednesday, 7 p.m. Central Time, and that means it's time for another episode of the Week in Horror Podcast. The only podcast where there'll be food and drink and ghosts and perhaps even a few murders. You're all invited. And if you, dear horror fanatic, are listening to us at the top of the week, remember, we do this live every Wednesday right here on YouTube. Come hang out and see all the stuff our editor doesn't want you to see. Hmm, maybe missing out. This week, recovering select horror films released January 8th through January 14th. Thank you all so much for joining us. I'm Eugene, and with me tonight are Alex and JL. What's up, everybody? Good evening, everyone. Don't you love it when Eugene just puts on like the sultry voice at like the top, like the top of the episode? He's like reading it in. He's like, yeah. yeah. He's got that. He's got that. That like, he's got that like that that deep radio kind of like in the deep of night. Like I'm here with you all night from twelve to four. <laughs> and I'm just like, yes. This Duke Silver, love me. <laughs> Say hi to me. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, it has been a minute since we've had uh, had the the original trio up on stage, and uh, it's always it's always a blast. Because uh, I know Alex, I know you're crazy busy, you know, up there with so many kids, <laughs> you're you, no like breeding like a Catholic, breeding like a Catholic rabbit. Uh, so our flight got we got we got mixed up in the whole uh, the whole Midwest malfunction with the flights. And so we flew up to Minnesota, and I was supposed to come back with the, the oldest kid on Tuesday, and our flight got canceled. And they're like, yeah, we can get you out in like five or six days. I was like, no, no, I got to go home. Like, Who would think that was okay? <laughs> there was nothing out. So everything was everything was booked out. We were supposed to come back on that Tuesday, and they're like, yeah, we can get you out on the first. And I was like, no, I got to be back this year. Like. <laughs> I'd like, like to be back in 2022. Thank you very much. So I, had to, I had to rent a car. And so we rented like this little Kia Sportage and I trekked nonstop from Minneapolis to Fort Worth. And it was, I did it 13 and a half hours. It wasn't breaking any laws, but yeah, it was, that was intense. So it went from, you know, supposed to fly up, fly back to fly up negative 28 degree wind chills, you know, three feet of freaking snow to your flights canceled. Now drive across the entire country. 
So yeah, nice. it was, it's been it's been a hell of a week. I finally came skin back in this week. So, hey everybody, good to see you. Hell, <laughs> <laughs> oh, and, and I know Eugene is is finally getting a chance to like. I, I know you've been chilling for for a minute ever since you got off that last that month long shoot, and so now have things been rel- relatively chill. Uh, a little bit. There is a shoot coming up. I'm working with Johnny on this weekend. So we're shooting Friday, Saturday, Sunday. It's kind of a little kind of a sitcom skit thing. And um, so it's going to be it's going to be really fun it's just to see how it kind of works out. They have the producers flying in from New York. I just found nice. out like an hour before this podcast. They're like, oh, I'm not local. I'm from New York. I'm just flying in. I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just flying in. It's all good. All right, all right, awesome, fan, fan, freaking tastic. Well, yes, and I have been busy at work as well. The uh, the writing gigs um, keep me you know, well firmly planted at my desk, and uh, you know it's it's weird trying to balance everything I've got going on here because it's not just the podcast; it's also my personal channel. It's also you know do, working on people's scripts, doing rewrites, or doing treatments, or doing you know doing you know helping people with their projects and and, uh, and the like, and of course engaging with my audiences, you know asking questions, you know answering questions, and trying to schedule live streams and all kinds of stuff. So, but you know tr- it's weird trying to balance like when you get into this kind of life, you know as as both a writer and kind of a podcaster. I find myself like here, like at my desk more often than not. And then of course, but I have life out there. I've got my dogs. I've got stuff that I have to do in the house. I've got things I got to do out in the world. And the, you know, it's weird finding the balance, finding like, a, finding like a work balance here. It's like they say, you know, you can either work nine to five, you can go into business for yourself and you go into business for yourself. You wind up working 24 hours a day. So it's pretty much how it goes. Um, but it's a blast, man. It's, it's, in 2023 is looking to be an amazing year for all of us here at Weekend Horror and all of us in our personal stuff as well and i hope as well that 2023 is going to be an amazing year for all of you in the live chat as well so many you know you know cool things coming up but let's see who we've got in the chat tonight before we move on with tonight's selections and we have some some stuff to uh, to check out as well <clears throat> so we've got <clears throat> dang it i hate it when i bleh, can't speak i can't articulate it it's only a podcast. Large. You don't have to like articulate <laughs> This is the stuff that the editor doesn't want you to see. Or he doesn't want you to hear, technically. So, I see we've got Raven Darkstar who says, I can't be first. But you were first, Raven. Good to see you. Travis Brown as well says, good evening, New Year's Evilers. Good to see you, Travis Brown. Thank you so much for being here. McKinnon Mitchell is in the house. Says, Ooh, a Tom Sizemore movie. He hasn't had an overabundance of movies, but all that I've seen, he tends to be great. Tom Sizemore is, is an underrated actor. And I think doesn't get, because of kind of like, his, you know, I guess because of his look, he is kind of pigeonholed in particular roles. Well, I think it, he a lot uh-huh. of it's because of like some personal issues because he's dealt with uh, like addiction and stuff oh, that really okay. kind of hampered. Because I mean, after like Saving Private Ryan, he blew up. He was badass in Saving he, Private Ryan. He was awesome in Saving Private Ryan. <laughs> he took an eight millimeter round of the chest, and he's like, "Oh, I just got the wind knocked out of me." Yeah, I just got the wind knocked out of me. Yeah, I'm, I'm good. It's like, <laughs> but I, I and, and but to, to see in such a smaller role, considering this was a this was a Tom Hanks, you know, Matt Damon kind of vehicle, and he, you know, Tom Hanks is you know obviously Tom Hanks, but for Tom Sizemore in that small role to kind of like hold his own. You know, in that, yeah, I loved him in that role. I loved him as kind of like the hard-nosed sergeant who's just like, you know, hey, man, it's another day in the fucking trench. So he's he's great. I, I, and I'm glad that we got to do, that we got to talk about this movie. I'm really looking forward to it. I've been looking forward to it for a while. Because it's, I love the book, 
and I love this film. So we're gonna we're gonna jump onto it. But good to see you, McKenna Mitchell. I see Gavlar the Hand of Zod is here. It says good evening, everyone. Good to see you, Gavlar, as well as Nemo813. Thanks so much for being here. Angel Rivera as well says, What up, what up? Good to see you. And I see as well Sir Chasm's here. Good to see you, Sir Chasm. And Denova28 says, Hello, boys and ghouls. Good to see you, Denova. Casey Cooper, well met. Thanks so much for being here, Casey. And I think I see... Oh, there he is. Donnie does that. Good to see you, Donnie. Thanks so much for being here tonight. Brian Powell as well says, Hello, everyone. I guess we know who was late. We were. Just a couple of minutes. There was some some kind of like background stuff we needed to, to chat about before we went live. There's Alex reminding everybody that we were coming. Yeah, sorry about the late start there. And, of course, Sally Skellington is here. Says, I made it. You made it, Sally. Good to see you. Thanks so much for being here tonight. Armageddon's fire's in the house. Is good day all. Good to see you. Armageddon and Christo Kiernan as well. Good to see you, Christo. Commander Darklight is here. Good to see you all the way from uh, Oceania. Because I forgot if he's from Australia. I think he's in Australia. Or is he in New Zealand? Oh, he's going to kill me for that. Yep. I totally spaced. Yep, that's it. He's good. He's 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 like what what I think he's like one of our one of our oldest like patrons. He's totally gonna unsubscribe. He's one of like the first three. I think he's like one of the first three, right? Yeah. And he's you know and he's you know it's amazing. But uh, oh, he's gonna be so mad at me. <laughs> he's, I'm totally um, watching the comments. He's pretty. I'm waiting for the message via Discord. <laughs> I'm waiting for him to like message me directly and be like, I'm from I'm from fucking this place. I know he's in Oceana. Ah, I got that right. <laughs> <laughs> Sir Cab says Eugene it, good to see you Commander Dark like thanks so much for being here Sir Cab says Eugene is the sex symbol after all he is the sex symbol of that the group he absolutely is Mystique Tina Jones is here good to see you Mystique says yep we did have to uh, well we, we gave you like a five minute window but thank you so much for being here Mystique uh, Tony Regime as well with the obligatory ghosts thank you Raven Darkstar says Eugene is Venus Flytrap reincarnate oh yeah I can feed off of sunlight but I choose violence <laughs> <laughs> oh good to see you good to see you aaron reese is hanging out there in the chat good to see you, aaron hope everything is uh hope you're feeling better and i hope everything's working out um aaron's got you know it's craziness out there out east so he's dealing with that um hope everything's working uh charlie what's jail can't speak Psh, yeah i know right it's rare but it does happen fred knots is here says a weird year so far and we're only four days in <laughs> it can only get weirder <laughs> Oh, man. Charlie Welch is here. Good to see you, Charlie Welch. I'm the only man on the internet you never make a bet with. Good to see you. Charlie says, oh, yes, Giant Meteor 2023. I don't know what that means. Giant Meteor? Is, is that it? Is 2023 the end? Like, you, we, we had a good run. If we go out doing the show, that's pretty badass. That is. I, I would I would consider that going out on a high note. Oh, absolutely. Like, the building, <laughs> like, exploding in flames behind you, and you're still, would... like, going through the movie. <laughs> And as always, stay scared. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, uh, Jinju is here. Good to see you, Jinju. Says hello, everyone. Don't spit the uh, don't spit the frog in your throat out, JL. Your local witch might use it against you. Good point. Excellent point. Thank you very much. And I see. I think I got everybody. Oh yeah, Raven Dark says WKRP in Cincinnati, Eugene. WKRP in Cincinnati. <laughs> Commander, oh, oh, there he is. Uh, Dib Dib is here. Good to see you, Dib Dib. And I think, let me see here. Um, where the I, I know I could have sworn the Commander Darklight was going to correct me. Oh yeah, he he did. He already commented. It's an ever. It's uh, I'm trying to find. What did he say? He said, "I think I was. I think I was second after Thor, uh, Rasmune, and I'm in Sydney from New Zealand." 
in okay that's it he's in australia but he's from, from new, new zealand. zealand yeah you know what that so when i said oceana i was correct you know i just covered both i just covered it you yeah, know just keep it's it all wide. good just just go just pacific ocean Tony Regime says a professional voice actor that has trouble speaking. Who'd have thought? It happens sometimes. It really, really does. And I think I want to make sure I didn't miss anybody. Um, second after Thor. Oh, Thor Rasmussen was here. I didn't see him. Oh no, that was Commander Dark. I said I was because I remember it was like one of the top first. Three oh, patrons. oh, okay. Second after Thor Rasmussen. Gotcha. Cool, cool, awesome. <clears throat> All right, so. Angel Rivera says, "You got weak in horror. You guys are the Woody Harrelson crazy guy from 2012 of the horror world. We absolutely are. Yes. I will bang my drum and you know and laugh at the super volcano as it's going off in my face. I absolutely will. I absolutely will. 100. percent All right. So before we uh, before we dive into tonight, I first want to say we have a big, huge, giant shout out. We have a brand new member of the Week in Horror Patreon family." So a huge welcome to Jeff Nunya for joining the Weekend Horror Patreon family. We appreciate your support, bud. Thank you also very much. You know, and I'm your your support helps us make this show possible. So we love you for it. Thank you very much, Jeff. Jeff Nunya. Yes, thank you, Jeff. Thank you so much. We greatly appreciate you. Absolutely, and you can see your name down there in the banner below. So we appreciate you jumping on and and helping us out with the show. Now, this is what I'm I've been excited about this all day. Ever since it dropped. Because it just dropped today. And we're going to watch it before we dive into tonight's uh, film selections. But Commander Darklight even messaged me. It was like, hey dude, did you see this? And I was like, fuck yes, I've seen it. And we're going to we're gonna show it tonight. So if you, have you seen it yet? I sent it in the <laughs> messenger chat. That's right, you did send it in the messenger chat. Yeah, That's right, it was it you. Dropped, it was dropped you. like an hour, yeah. And I was like, check this out, but we need to talk about it on the show. Alex, have you, have you seen this yet? I just popped back in. I apologize. Got a phone call. It said, Dad, you know, you always got to answer this. Um, what, what did I see? Okay, so we have a new trailer. We have a yeah. trailer coming out. And I'm not going to give it any fan, any additional fanfare. Fanfare doesn't need it. We've been waiting for this trailer for a minute. So if you have not seen this, we show it to you here live. Alex, I hope you uh, hope this is the first time you've seen it. Check out the trailer for Evil Dead Rise. All right. I would be so fucking pissed. Somebody jumped out of my bathtub, clung to the ceiling, and screamed at me. I'd be like, really? Like, I don't got enough shit on my plate already? <laughs> so what are you guys thinking? That, uh, that was good. Eugene, when you put it in the chat earlier, I thought it was like a, a video game because I didn't really get a good look at it because I was at work and it looked like a video game trailer. I was like, oh, they're making a game. Cool. I didn't know this is a movie. It's fantastic. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. I am stoked. I've been excited about Evil Dead Rise ever since I saw the first poster for it. And I was like, this is going to be fucking amazing. Uh, to change up the to change up the setting and kind of incorporate it. it. It feels a little bit like whenever a horror franchise like you know goes from the outskirts to the city. Because we see it in virtually like, like Leprechaun went to the city and then Critters went to the city and so on and so forth. Because the environment has to get bigger and there has to be more elements. But I dig this. I dig this. It's both confined because it's within the building, but it's also larger because it's part of the yeah, it's part of the bigger world. So I really, really like that. Uh, I'm so excited about this. Yeah, I'm actually I'm excited about it too because Evil Dead, first of all, is one of the very few franchises that doesn't have a bad entry. Everything from Evil Dead has been solid, from uh, Evil Dead One to Army of Darkness, the remake. 
uh, even Ash versus Evil Dead, all of it's been fantastic. So it's one of those few franchises where it can simply be like, they could have had a trailer that's like, Evil Dead Rise, release April. I'm excited. But the one thing that I've been seeing more and more, and I have to point this out with trailers, the one thing I've been seeing more and more, because I also saw this with Cocaine Bear, ah. stop showing kills in your trailer. True. Stop, because you see, you see like her getting scalped in the Evil Dead trailer, and in the Cocaine Bear, uh, you see the bear climb up the tree, and then like two shots later, you see the guy like mangled, like laying on the floor. And I was like, unless it's some kind of a maybe a misdirection, like maybe it's not real or something like that, and I can kind of excuse that. But mm. I hate the fact that movies are giving or trailers are giving away more and more, and it's like. You don't show kills because that's part of the movie. That's I don't true. want to go into the movie going, oh, well, this person's already going to get skinned alive. So it's uh, kind of like I think it's it's like the like the the uh, the Alvarez Evil Dead the the scene the thing that gets me. Obviously, there was a lot of stuff in that that was gnarly as fuck and got me every time. Like you know the the electric knife, the electric knife on the arm, you know the. The stabbing in the face with the hypodermic needle, all the shit that was nasty in that, the bifur, the tongue bifurcation, that one still gets me. I'm even thinking about it. it gives me the, just the, the shudders. But it was the sequ- the the scene, um, the one. But th- this is what I dig is that even though they showed this, the scalping that that's gnarly as fuck. Yeah. And the question is like, how are they going to top that? But that's what Alvarez did. Alvarez topped that because the sequence. That got me in all of the Alvarez Evil Dead was literally the first five minutes. Was the girl running in the woods, gets grabbed, dropped down in the basement, tied up, and then literally the first five minutes of the movie. And that that opening, that cold open left me with my jaw on the floor. And I was like, this is amazing. And then it didn't matter that every, you know, I'd seen so many, so much other stuff in the trailer. Like I knew they were going to redo the the uh, the tree rape scene. I knew they were going to do the sequence of the girl in the bathroom. So you know it's coming, but it doesn't matter because that opening moment hit me. So I'm wondering, even though we saw what we saw, what are we not seeing in this movie? But see, yeah. another thing is, is when it comes to trailers. Now you have the you have the opening for the 2013 Evil Dead and they go and they capture the girl. What if they showed the twist in that trailer? I because I, I can't remember the trailer off the top of my head, but like it wouldn't nearly have the same impact. You can start the trailer off by oh they're chasing and grab her and they tie her to I think it's like a beam stake something like that, and they could have left it, and that's fine for a trailer. That's fine. That's a, that's a great establishing moment, but the twist. Imagine if that was in the trailer. That's the wild. See, either way, we are we are like excited to see what's going to go down in this thing, and I want to see because I want to see not only the the, the scalping scene, but like I want to see what leads up to that, oh, yeah. and of course what happens after the fact. I mean, so the He's we strange. see, but you wondering how I got here. <laughs> so let me tell you about the time I almost died. <laughs> so, but, so uh, the uh, the reactions in the live chat are pretty uh, pretty amazing. So I like this. Um, I got dang. I got to go back a bit. So uh, blah blah blah. Uh, why vote? Oh, see, Aaron Reese is promoting his vote for Cthulhu campaign. That's right. Why vote for a lesser evil? Absolutely. Um, I'll stop, let me see. So. McKinnon, uh, no, I'm trying to. Oh yes, McKinnon said, "Evil Dead Rise, absolutely Evil Dead Rise, absolutely." And then uh, Aaron Reese said, "Sounds like Christmas at my house." 
Um, let me see. Um, Jinju says, oh, sounds like my kind of gal. Badass. Wow, that is an omelet. Yep, that was that was going to be an intense omelet she was making in that. Uh, Aaron Reese said, you try to bring people together and suddenly it's unlawful tampering with the corpse. <laughs> this is what OG Evil Dead was before Evil Dead 2. Yep, Travis Brown. It's got a lot of the feel of, of like original Evil Dead with some of that Alvarez uh, intensity, which I'm really looking forward to. Yep, Charlie Welch says, looks pretty fucking good. Absolutely does. Charlie Welch said, whoa. Yep, nice. DeNova28 says, looks awesome. Can, uh, Commander Arclight says, so fucking cool. And uh, Tom Travis Brown said, the poster made it look like the smile poster, which may have been a misdirect. They may have been smart on that because meta, no, kind of like a, like a meta twist, has always been a part of the Evil Dead. Kind of like poking fun at the genre that it's a part of while also leaning really hard into the tropes that make it what it is. Which is one of the cool things that Raimi just does. Um, Denova 20 says, I like the Shining reference. Absolutely. Sally Skeleton said, nice. McKenna Mitchell said, I could not be more fucking excited. It has just enough of the feel of the other movies, but it is definitely its own beast. Absolutely. Sir Cab says, Mommy's with the maggots now. Oscar line delivery of the year. Absolutely, it does. <laughs> uh, Aaron Reese says, if a demon jumped out of my tub, they've got to deal with full frontal. More power to them. <laughs> <laughs> Look at it! Look at it! <laughs> Brian Powell says, I would be, now I need to, I, w- I would be, now I need to clean the fucking ceiling. Oh, <laughs> uh, let me see. Yeah, Gavlar Hanazad says, fucking sweet. Absolutely. Uh, Commander Dark Knight says, the scalping may not have killed her. Good point. I mean, that is a good point. If you have a Terrifier 2, that one scene started with fucking, the scalping. Oh, fucking, yeah, uh, yeah. I would say, for you Art the Clown's one thing. Deadites. Fucking deadites, man. Yeah. Deadites, dude. <clears throat> so I got awesome, awesome vibes about this. I'm really, really looking forward to it. Uh, April is going to be an awesome, awesome month. It's going to be fantastic. All right. So that was pretty much so. I did tell you, I wanted to show everybody the trailer for uh, for Evil Dead Rise. And, of course, uh, this weekend, uh, Megan is coming out. So I'm looking forward to checking that out. Um, but, yeah, we, I think 2023 is going to be a good year for horror. I think it's going to be a good year too. This is the last couple of years have been pretty solid for horror. I really like the direction that horror has gone. We're still getting original movies coming out, which is still nice, but at the same time, getting good remakes and reboots. So it's definitely a good time. Absolutely. And, uh, take it easy, Aaron. He's off to deal with his car. Oh, good luck. But yeah. we're here to talk about movies. And speaking, yes, we are. <laughs> and speaking of franchises, Alex, kick us off. Okay, let's uh, let's start tonight off with something fun. Uh, this is going to be Jennifer Aniston's debut movie, yes! Leprechaun, <laughs> dropped January eighth, nineteen ninety three. Roll it. Oh, we we talked about other ones, but we have yet to. I was so looking forward to this. Let's check out this trailer. Nice. <laughs> it's out of the crate. Uh, all right, this was uh, written. It's out of the crate by... and right into our hearts. <laughs> Although uh, Warwick David did play in like another Leprechaun movie that was like family friendly, not too long after this movie, which was just hilarious because it's like, dude, I just watched you murder people. All right, so this is written and directed by Mark Jones, uh, starring Warwick Davis, obviously Jennifer Aniston, Ken Olin. Mark Holton, uh, Shay Duffin is in this one, John Volstead. Uh, yeah, so this was a uh, 1993 kind of comedy horror film where Warwick Davis is playing a vengeful leprechaun who 
believes that the family that he is attacking stole his gold, and so he tries to hunt them down so he can get his gold, so he can nullify himself. Fucking just, just Warwick Davis, man. It was like coming out of the gates, fucking swinging. Fucking <laughs> oh man. Yeah. Jesus. Honestly, the thing is, Warwick Davis is the sole force driving this film because this film could have been really bad really quick. Absolutely. Absolutely. Really so, th- so that's what's wild is, you know, obviously, you know, this is, I have heard some people state, I've heard some people say in interviews that they've gone back and they've watched that they've watched Leprechaun. And nowadays, in today's kind of culture, this and I can understand it. I get what people are talking about. They, they talk about like, they feel it was exploitative that Warwick Davis would be in this Leprechaun movie. And I think that actually kind of does apply when you look at the other Leprechaun movie that he did where he played a Leprechaun, it was a family-friendly one. And it feels a little bit exploitative because he is, uh, you know, because he is a little person. And he was, you know, plays the roles that he can play. But what I like on this one is in, my, in the way I see going back and because I hadn't watched this thing in years, going back and watching it now, what I see this at what I see this as now was Warwick Davis essentially taking a role that typically little people are dwarves or uh, individuals who saw, who have uh, some sort of growth disorder, take or some sort of you know, uh, uh, growth li- uh, limitation taking the roles that they typically get pigeonholed into and literally kicking it in the ass by turning it into this horror comedy icon. So I think that's why the character is so endearing. I think why Warwick Davis is so, it was so fantastic is because he knew what he was doing. He literally stood up and said, you know what? You know, we get cast as leprechauns. We get cast as elves. We get cast as, you know, very, you know, like you know, in Willow and stuff like this. We, we, you know, this, these are the roles we get stuck into. So, roles that like Peter Dinklage has said he refuses to take, that he will not take roles like that. He absolutely will not. But I think Warwick Davis, Warwick Davis took a look at this and was like, you know what? It's a horror movie. And I think I can bring a brand to this and be like, you know what? Fuck you. I'm going to make this how I am going to make bring what I want to the character. We're going to do it this way. And not only are we going to have a lot of fun, but I'm going to essentially kind of take that whole kind of pigeonholing mentality and be like, fuck that. We can break this and we can do it the way we want to do it. So we can take it and kind of spin it and turn it on its head, you know, and have fun with it. Because there hadn't been really a horror leprechaun movie done in the, in, in the like in a slasher sense. And so he got to do that and he broke that ground. And so I, I'm going back on, on this next, on this last viewing, I was like, holy shit, he's literally telling the entire fucking industry to just go fuck themselves in regards <laughs> to how they view and how they cast little people. And it was just brilliant. And so many kind of like, just, you know, like nods in there. I was like, that's fucking badass. I think there was a little bit more kind of personal edge to it than we may have initially seen in like 1993. So, but going back to kind of like looking at that, I was, I'd love to be able to pick Warwick's brain about that, about how his approach to that and uh, what he brought to it to kind of like tell the industry to go eat themselves while delivering a film that cost a million dollars to make and banked eight million, you know, with a, it's a giant fuck you to the critics who all hated the movie. Well, see, it's not very often that you get these, a legitimate role for little people. We talk about with Peter Dinklage and Tyron Lannister from Game of Thrones, who he was little in the books. So you have to Tyrion, stay true to Tyrion. Yeah, Tyrion. Yeah, Tyrion. Yeah. Now Tyron, Tyron's a dad. Tyrion Lannister, 
who is little he's a little person in the book so it's like a here's a character that has in depth who just happens to be little and with leprechaun it's kind of the same way where it's like you haven't seen a leprechaun horror movie yet and obviously to get somebody to play the leprechaun you're gonna have to start looking at little people so it's not like a oh we're gonna have a random scene and have little people do stuff that's exploitative no you have just a legitimate character that has to be played by somebody by a little person uh the same thing as a little person who played uh r2d2 in the star wars um it, it's just it's just a role that happens to fit them or or wicket in return of the jedi or yeah wicket in yeah. return of the jedi the it just happens to fit and these roles don't come around very often and warwick davis saw the opportunity and went with it and because he carried the franchise carried it yes and and that was surprising is that even in the last one because we recently talked about leprechaun back to the hood the the sequel to the hood one with with i think ice cube no ice t was in that ice t was in the uh was in leprechaun in the hood and we talked about the sequel back to the hood an absolutely abysmal film but he still managed to bring a level of nuance to the character even though I, i feel like the vast majority of it was improv but still you could tell that he still loves the character. He loves what it made. It, 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 the character of Lubden, Lubden the Leprechaun, means a great deal to him. And I love seeing that. It's almost like when you, when you watch uh, K, uh, Kane Hodder in Friday the 13th, in, the, in his four Friday the 13th movies. You can tell how much he fucking loves being Jason. And how much he of himself he throws into that performance. And that's what makes, that, that essentially is what makes a horror icon. You know, it w- if it wouldn't have been the Warwick Davis seeing how he could play this to his advantage and have fun doing it, break new ground in in the in the horror genre and really go for broke, that's brilliant. And that's why Leprechaun Three was not as bad as it could have been when he was in Vegas because the director said, you know what, Warwick's got this. What he recognized Warwick's talent. He recognized that Warwick knows the character and loves it. Let Warwick do his own spin. We're not gonna we're not gonna hold him down or restrain him. Let him go for broke, and that's why he's the only thing that salvaged uh, Leprechaun Three. So that's why I loved it. I, I got going back to see this because it was new. It was the first time he played it. That's why it was amazing. And you know, fuck what the critics said on this one because every single one of them you know lambasted this thing like coming and going. But the crit, but the the us the fans spoke, and that's why this thing made as much money. With well, the original, with this one, made as much money as it. Plus, it gave us Jennifer Aniston, you know, her first film role. Which is probably why she didn't do a film role for a while after this one. <laughs> I mean, and the thing is, is honestly, yeah, this is Jennifer Aniston's first film role, and Jennifer Aniston blew up to where she is today. And to be honest, I don't. When I think of Leprechaun, the first movie, she barely even comes to mind. I know, right? It's like you don't even think about it. It's like, yeah, and, and it's you like, look oh, at the yeah, posters. For, you look at the posters for it today, and it's like Jennifer Aniston's right there in the picture, like. I'm sorry. I love Jennifer. I love Jennifer Aniston. I think she's a good actress. I like. Mean, she was funny in Friends. I liked some of the. I liked some of the films. She was good in the the Vince Vaughn one that she did. The the breakup. Oh yeah, she's good. Yeah. To break. And she's she, good in wearing the Mill- uh, we're the Millers too. Yeah, she's good in wearing the Millers. She and she was good in her little role in Office Space. I liked her in that little supporting role. Um, she's good as a, part of an ensemble. Is what it is. Is how that works. But Leprechaun, the, the whole franchise belongs to Warwick Davis. And recognizing that, I think that going back and watching this one, and despite the fact that it was filmed 
it, I felt it was filmed kind of lazily. It used stuff that's already been done before, which is okay. You know, you don't need to add anything new to the... You don't need to add anything new to the formula in order to tell, essentially, a slasher with a leprechaun. It's all going to be sold. And I think Warwick recognized, that's the genius of Warwick Davis, is he recognized that it's not the way you shoot this thing. It's not going to be the location. It's not going to be the It's not going to be the dialogue. It's not going to be, you know, n- n- nothing's going to sell this thing. What's going to sell this fucking movie is what Warwick Davis brings to this role and how he reinvents kind of the the notion of what little people can do in this particular role. It doesn't have to be this way. And and from that, we've got a whole cut. Now, if you notice, after 1993, there's like, not just the Leprechaun franchise, there's a number of other evil Leprechaun movies out there. So, you know, whether it's comedic or horror. So he broke new ground as far as what, what they could do. And I love that he did that. So, and had so much fun doing it, because I forgot that there's a lot of really fucking funny kills in this goddamn movie that made me fucking, I was like, oh shit, that's actually kind of funny. (laughs) (laughs) It was the, all the scenes where, like, they just, I want to see the the cameraman filming the scenes where they're doing, like, Warwick, Warwick height shots. Where he's running, where he's running. Like, how, the... how are they holding the camera? Are they holding it like this and and just running behind <laughs> Jennifer Aniston while she? Like, it's wild. I want to see the movie get filmed. It's so wild because it, it 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 has kind of an Evil Dead feel because yeah. of the presence in the woods, you know, running yeah. through you know because it runs at pretty much ground level and yeah. is running through everything. And I found it to be uh, hilarious. Like whoever did that was smart. It was like, yeah, we can get these images because th- those were done in other films like the movie Troll. And that was done back in the 80s with, uh, that obviously did not inspire Harry Potter. <laughs> but, <laughs> but the, um, I like how they're, they're, like I said, you didn't need to reinvent the formula, but take little things from that other, uh, directors and other films did really well, and you can use them to bolster, uh, what people get to see on screen. Um, but as far as it goes, you know, it comes down to the genius of Warwick Davis, why this movie works and why it's so much fun to watch. Despite the fact that if you, you know, Nothing else really is great. It's just kind of there, but we don't need anything else. It's a fun kind of like popcorn, you know, killer slasher that's just that has some funny moments and Warwick Davis just chewing up the fucking scenery every opportunity he gets to just, you know, laugh. Even the sequence when he's sitting there just rhyming and being silly is absolutely fucking hilarious. So I, I really, really love this one. Oh, yeah. Jeremy Duncan brings up ghoulies. Absolutely. Ghoulies did it a lot, too, with the cameras mm-hmm. falling around it at ground level. So, but Jeremy Duncan, good to see you. Thanks for, so much for being here. Appreciate it. McKenna Mitchell says, we, she went from fighting monsters in movies to dating a monster in Friends. Leprechaun is the spirit animal of Ross Geller. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny that he mentions that because I saw a video that showed, that was a compilation of Ross Geller clips from Friends, but the laugh track was taken out. Yeah. And so you take out the laugh track, and he comes off as completely psychotic, <laughs> like he's like a total fucking sociopath. <laughs> this, this, is why, this is why his best role was when he was uh, Captain Sorbel in Band of Brothers, because it's so believable how big of a dick he is. <laughs> I mean, so I don't know if you've ever watched Band of Brothers, but it's he's like the first, uh, he's the first commanding officer of like their the company. And, like, he tells them they have the day off and why don't you eat? And then right in the middle of their eating, they're like, nope, we're going to go do a six-mile ruck march up a hill. And then his men are puking. Like, he's just a straight 
dick throughout the entire episode. And I was like, yeah, the perfect casting. <laughs> Makes <Yeah>. sense. <laughs> Denova28 asked, didn't they do a Leprechaun remake? So essentially the way it went is there were six Leprechaun films that Warwick Davis starred in all of them. And then they, uh, they attempted to uh, do... A Leprechaun, I think it was a Leprechaun Returns, which was supposed to be a sequel to the first film, like a direct sequel to the first film, and that one was just absolutely terrible. Although I felt that the design of the Leprechaun was not bad. The design of the monster was okay, but everything else about the movie was completely awful. And then there was another one that was Leprechaun Origins, and that was just one of the... Uh, it, it was so fucking bad... Number one, there's no actual, like, recognizable leprechaun in it. Um, <laughs> but that's one of the worst things about it. But it, I will say that at least this, it wasn't as bad as Silent Hill, uh, the Silent Hill sequel. It wasn't as bad as that because I actually fell asleep during that one. Um, but, yeah, but, yeah, they tried to do two more films. And, you know, without Warwick Davis, the, the, the franchise just doesn't work because he's the one. You need that level of energy you need that level of dedication that love for the character to make this franchise work which is why you know it you know this one little film that cost a million dollars turned into a six picture you know franchise for warwick davis and so and you know kind of solidified him as you know one of the top-notch actors i, I you know i love him and everything that he does i haven't seen a thing that i haven't liked and uh but i, I love going back and watching this one and yeah there's a lot of things that could have been done better um a lot of things that could have been you know Probably, you know, cleaned up a little bit, but it was 1993. I was 13, you know? It was almost, you know, fucking 20 years ago, so. I mean, the thing is. Or 30 years ago. 30 years ago? Uh, Yeah, 30 years ago. Fucking hell, man. Yeah, I'm damn old. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the, the thing is, is Warwick Davis, like, he is the driving force behind it. He's the one. If you put someone else in that, this movie would have tanked. And it would have because the writing itself, the writing is okay at best, right? Um, and it doesn't do anything really new or original or anything just of that nature. And I don't know if maybe they found Warwick Davis and chatted with him. We're like, nope, we're gonna make a movie around you. Or maybe they cast him first, like, okay, we can finally make this happen. Or maybe they just got to on set day one, and the director was like. You know what? I don't got much else, but I got this, and I'm gonna run with it. And that was an excellent, excellent call. <laughs> I dug, I dug that. You know, he performed most of his own stunts in the film, so he put himself bodily into the role, which is absolutely really, really fucking cool. And something that was funny that he said is that a lot of the a lot of the violent scenes um, were filmed at Big Sky Ranch, it was one of the shooting locations where Little House on the Prairie and the Waltons also filmed. And so he said, he said being on there and doing that felt a little blasphemous in his eyes. It's like bringing this level to bringing this kind of carnage to, uh, to those wholesome production sets. Um, so and there's a, I, I, I loved it. Um, and that there was, I think it was, a, that's right. He, it was Warwick Davis who wanted more comedic elements. And then they found a, they found a happy medium where they went with, with Warwick's comedy elements and Jones wanted, uh, and some of the producers wanted more gore to appeal to older audiences to, to, to bring it all in. So I don't like that. They leaned hard into the horror and were able to compromise with Warwick and lean into the comedy, which is that, which I think gave it its appeal. 
Well, it may have been uh, because in the middle of filming, they the studio originally wanted it to be like a PG or PG thirteen film. Oh fuck that! Yeah, that was the original thing. It was supposed to be more like a family kind of a horror film, and it wasn't until it wasn't until the last probably week of shooting that they switched it to R. So they have to go back in nice. and add stuff. Oh, uh, because one of the things they added was when he's chasing the cop through the woods and breaks his neck. That was shot. I was filmed on like one of the last days. Nice. That was just added in. And I'm um, checking out here, just looking at Mark Jones, um, who who came up in television. Um, he wanted to do a low budget horror film because he wanted me. He wanted to break into filmmaking, which is low budget horror is typically where you do it. And he busted it and with it, essentially. He was inspired by, and I think this is the best inspiration ever because nobody else saw it. He was inspired by Critters, which actually you can see a lot of the influence in filmmaking and the cinematography and how that was shot. But he was inspired by Critters and fucking Lucky Charms. So he was like, how can I take these two, these two elements and blend them together and make them work? And here you have it, man. That's just absolutely fantastic. Oh, that's great. That's that's fucking amazing. Well, I see. There he is. Okay. I was. Oh, apparently he's got distractions going on. Always, mm-hmm. dude. I got four fucking kids, a wife, flowers. Anyways, so I want to ask you. <laughs> Travis browses. Good night, John Boy. John Boy being murdered by a leprechaun. <laughs> <laughs> Shit happens. Um, Warwick Davis, you know, it's not not his. I don't think it's his debut role, but but definitely one of his best for sure. Um, I want to know from the audience, what is your favorite Warwick Davis role? Um, you know, oh. did you like him here? Did you like him as Knackerman Number Two in Small Town Folk? <laughs> <laughs> He's had so many more pro- prolific roles than that. But I will I will say this. Warwick Davis's best role, one of his best roles for me. Okay, so I love him as Leprechaun, obviously. He's done a bunch of other ones. He was Wicket in, uh, you know, he was the Wicket, the Ewok. Um, he's done so many different things. But, and this may, I don't know how many people are going to, are going to pick, or are going to catch this. Warwick Davis did an episode. This is not, and this is wild because it's not horror. Because he didn't do, he doesn't do a lot of horror. You know, and a lot of people are going to say Willow. Because he was amazing in Willow. Him, uh, he and uh, Val Kilmer had amazing chemistry together. So, but I'm going to say that there was an episode of Merlin that Warwick Davis did where he played a, he played the bridge keeper. And it was when Arthur was going on his quest, going on his quest to, to the Fisher King, to, to find like the Fisher King's trident. And so... There's while they're walking along, Arthur's supposed to be alone. He runs into and he runs into what has this sequence with Warwick Davis, and then later on, he uh, Merlin and Gawain come along and he has a sequence with them as well. There, but it's such a small role, you know. It's a very small role, but there's a lot of a lot of like exposition and information he gives. This this very tiny role in this show that lasted five that lasted five seasons on the BBC. Okay, I fucking loved him in this one because it showed. That he was a master of not only conveying a lot of information in in a very short amount of time, being able with with nuance and being able to convey, being able to emote and bring across a lot of information to the to the audience, but he was a mastery of his of his body in the sense that he could show 
the audience things that the other characters would not because it's it, you could believe that they would be passed off as like you know whatever they might be but his mastery of himself as his body as a tool as an actor is absolutely fucking phenomenal and he showcased it in this tiny little role that he did for a show that he made one appearance on one and time. i and i always love the episode when he comes up because i see those little actor details you know if i was if i was directing this i would have been like oh i, I would have been like just yeah it's like He's so fucking good. Just, just fucking cut, print that shit right now. And so, you know, I loved all of it, everything that he does. He brings so much to the table. Travis Brown nailed it with uh, Marvin from Hitchhiker's Guide. It, it's, it's was he line. was he in the was he in the 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 suit? Yeah, because it was Alan Rickman was the voice, right? Because Alan Rickman was fantastic as the voice of Marvin. He <laughs> <laughs> made him sound so sad. <laughs> so sad! He <laughs> oh, felt so bad oh. for him. Brian Powell brings up Professor Flitwick. Uh, yep, from the uh, Harry Potter series. Yep. Yeah. He's done so many good things. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Oh, JL. You didn't know this when, when you put this into the script. That I, I have like a literal personal life attachment to this next movie. Really? Yep. I'll tell you after the trailer. Fantastic. All right. So for our next, definitely let us know what your what you think is the best Warwick Davis role down in the comments below or at weekendhorror at gmail.com. This next movie we're going to talk about tonight. Oh, Sir Little says, now I have a headache. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Oh, I hope a, it wasn't us that gave it to you. It's a Morgan <laughs> reference. No, oh, no, oh <laughs> now I've got a headache. <laughs> he was so da- such a doubter. Um, but here we go. The next film we're going to talk about released January 10th, 1997. We have The Relic. <clears throat> so so the, the thing that they needed to really focus on in this movie was the material that it could break through. Because half the time, they just hide behind shit that this thing come through. There's doors and walls and stuff that it obviously can't, but like they're not putting that shit together it, it, the whole time. I'm like, you just you just watched it die through a door. It just broke through a door frame, and you're gonna hide behind a fucking drywall wall. <laughs> so um. we have the relic, uh, directed by Peter Hyams, uh, screenplay by Amy Holden Jones, Rick Jaffa, Amanda Silver, and John Raffo, based on Relic by Douglas Preston and Lincoln Child. The book was amazing if you haven't read it, and of course starring Penelope Ann Miller, Tom Sizemore, Linda Hunt, and James Whitmore. Um, the film follows a uh, a essentially a museum that is about to have a giant opening for its new superstition um, ex- exhibit or exhibit, and of course the uh, partygoers are then besieged by a monster that may or may not be human in origin or human in uh, development as it uh, you know runs through the uh, museum and eats people's fucking brains and shit, um, and yeah. Uh, a pure and total monster monster horror film with a excellent with a fairly excellent you know practical effects from Stan Winston. Um, really good time. Uh, but what is your personal connection to this? Okay, so uh, this movie came out in '97. I was about mm-hmm. seven years old. Um, I had just moved from Chicago to Minneapolis. Now, in the the book, there are museums in like New York, I think. And from what I remember, they went to this museum in New York and uh, and asked if they could film there. They offered them like a whole ton of money, like a million dollars or whatever to be like, can we film here? And the museum was like, nah, like it's going to portray us in a bad light. Like, you know, we can't uh, we can't have people like afraid of the museum, scary movie. 
And they were faced with these two other museums that resembled the one in New York, one in Washington, D.C., and one in Chicago. Now, they went to the Field Museum in Chicago, and they were like, hey, can we film here? And they're like, fuck yeah. Like, we'll, we'll take some money, shoot, you know, shoot, give us some fucking publicity. At the time, my grandfather, rest in peace, was a volunteer paleontologist for the Field Museum of Chicago. No shit. So, yes. Yeah, so... So when I was like seven and they filmed this, this movie there, my grandpa was actually around when they were doing the filming and uh, he benefited, his team benefited from some of the, the movie money that came from this movie to do some research, which led him to do some pretty cool things out in the field. So it was, it was kind of like, I didn't really know much about it. I knew that they had shot a movie there growing up. And then when I got older and saw it, I was like, hold on. And I put it all together. I was like, holy shit, this is the movie they filmed when I was seven years old. Uh, yeah, we used to go to the Field Museum all the time. I grew up in that freaking museum. So, yeah, this one had a little bit of a personal touch to it for me. Very That's cool. awesome. That is yeah. awesome. Yeah. So, before we dive into this, um, and, uh, yeah, before we, dive, before we dive into this one, apparently we lost the stream there temporarily. Uh, we're, we're currently back. Um, it wasn't that long, uh, but apparently, yeah. So it, it's hap it happened. This this has happened one time before where we actually lost the live stream. But we're still like recording. We're still we're still good on this end. So when you listen to this on uh, like the, if you listen to this uh, later on Sunday when it goes live on all the podcast sites, you'll hear everything that we were just talking. About. We didn't want to interrupt the conversation. Um, but uh, but yeah, unfortunately, uh, the stream was unavailable for a minute because it detected uh, some sort of copyright because of one of the trailers that we watched. This has only happened one time prior. It has not happened since until eventually, you know, obviously it happened now. And I actually got an email. Uh, Hi, Weekend Horror. Due to a copyright match, your stream was interrupted. Video title. I, I know the title of the video, but it doesn't say why. So it doesn't tell me what the copyright was. It was one of the trailers that we watched. I'm not sure which one it was. It may have been Evil Dead Rise. It may have been that, but I'm not 100% sure. So, but apparently now we are back. Um, yes, so we were only gone for just a couple of minutes, and, uh, yeah, wrote in last name, said, like, having a prostate issue. Stream, and a stream unavailable. Yeah, yeah, we're not even monetized. This channel is not even monetized, and we got interrupted. It's the, not it's anymore, the, we're not. Damn. It's the, it's the YouTube algorithm that's, that's me messing with us. It was about three minutes we were down, and now we're back up, so, yeah, that's, it, it's, it, it, come on, YouTube, it's a fucking trailer. Give me a fucking break. <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Malort is here. Good to see you, Mr. Malort. Says I watched the relic in the Field Museum on an overnight stay. That's awesome. That yeah, is very yeah, fucking cool. Cool shit. Nice. They they have those lions that that were uh, that uh, were the basis for uh, the Ghost in the Darkness, the uh -huh. Savo lions. And they got yeah. So they got those and the yeah Sue the the big T Rex, which I got to watch get put together as a kid. That's fucking cool. Yeah, that place is awesome. All right, so the big the big important thing on, on this, you know, yes, the there's going to be people who have read the book, who've read the uh, the novel Relic um, by uh, by Douglas Preston Lincoln Child. Uh, there's obviously there's going to be some differentiation between the the book in, it, in itself and of course the film adaptation. There is a character that was left out of the movie that was in the book because the because Relic was about Relic and its in its sequel Reliquary were both. Um, Members in the, I think the Pender, the Pendergast uh, franchise, which is um, 
I remember what the or notes of uh, yeah uh, Lieutenant Lieutenant Vincent D'Agosta and then of course Aloysius Pendergast. Our character is are both characters that were used multiple times by those uh, by Lincoln Child and Douglas Preston in their in a series of novels. So this was one that was adapted. They left out the Pender. Uh, they left out the uh, the FBI agent and they just kept it local with NY with with actually with with uh, Chicago. It was moved to Chicago when. Uh, the I think the original the Natural History Museum that they wanted to shoot at didn't like the fact that museum uh, I guess museum administration was viewed it was depicted in a very negative light like you know you know we're all like you know money grubbing you know assholes who do, who are, you know who will do you know, will put lives at risk just to make a dollar and shit like that and they didn't like that so the Natural History Museum didn't want them to shoot there but the Chicago Field Museum was like. Fuck yeah, we'll do anything for a dollar. Come yeah, shoot, yeah, come yeah, shoot so. here at the at the field museum. Well, yeah, they uh, want, to just, you want to give us a million dollars, and you're gonna put our museum in a movie. Like, let's go. Come fuck on. yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And but what I really dug about this is unlike a lot of other book adaptations where you they adapt from the book. One of the best examples is the is the book Watchers. Watchers by Dean Koontz is arguably one of his finest novels. The film adaptation with Corey Haim was absolute fucking trash. Was not good whatsoever. Captured none none of the magic and horror of the book. That because adapting books is very fucking hard. You know, screen playing a book is very difficult unless you're Peter Jackson and you just fucking shoot all of it. But in this case, I like what they did here, and the smart direction um, led to a really really solid adaptation. So they adapted this thing with care, which is always very very important. It's really hard because the mediums have their restrictions. Whereas with the books, you can write anything. It just costs a page versus filming something. And also one of the biggest things is runtime. A book can be a book can be 2,000 pages. And if it's good, people will sit there and read it. But people won't watch a 20-hour movie. Or maybe if you break it up into episodes, maybe they will. Or you're Peter, a, Jackson, you're Peter Jackson. Or, and, you, know, you cast Ian McKellen and, you know. You're Peter Jackson or James Cameron, one of those. Or Cameron, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But for the most part, so you always have to, so you always have to try to find the essence. And the easiest way to do this is you either have the writer involved, something like Mm. Harry Potter, J.K. Rowling was heavily involved in the entire making of the series. Or if that's not possible, sometimes it's not, is getting a director that is a huge fan. Peter Jackson grew up. He loved Lord of the Rings. He knew it frontwards and backwards. It's one of those dream jobs that he was he wanted to get. So he was able to just tap into why he particularly loved that series and just ran with it. And obviously it works because he loved the reasons, same way reason that a lot of other people do. But what ends up happening a lot of times is people will get tasked or they're like, well, we got this, we got this IP. Here's a director, make something. And a lot of, most of the time, this is where these series go wrong because sometimes the director doesn't even like the book. Uh, Peter Van Peter uh, Van Heusen read the first chapter of Starship Troopers and said the book sucked. And so I'm just going to do whatever I want um, because it was just the studio tasked him to do that. And when you have some of these others, it's like, well, I guess I'm just going to try to make... And every once in a while, somebody can stumble onto something good that maybe strays away from the book but still works. Right. But a lot of times what happens is these they miss the mark. They miss the mark completely because they're trying to 
well, maybe this is why they like it. Or it's the best example of it is it's like it's like watching, it's like reading the cliff notes and someone explaining the cliff notes to you. So you're like the third hand <laughs> viewer, and then the director makes a movie off of that. Right. That's what happens a lot of time. And that's why they missed the park. And that's why a lot of times we're disappointed in the adaptations because they were never a fan. Well, that's like, okay, so first of all, that's the third time that Starship Troopers has been mentioned today, which is not on the show, just in my day-to-day life, which is totally <laughs> weird. Uh, <laughs> um, but no, you're totally right. And it takes, I think what it does well is it doesn't try to add too much of its own thing into it. It takes the story, it sticks to the story, and it adds things kind of maybe where it's almost like they crowdsourced, listened, actually read the novel. Like they put thought into how they were going to adapt it other than like, oh yeah, I want to do it in my style. So I'm going to change everything about this. Um, and you see it like, cause there's a lot of really bad Stephen King film adaptions. There's a lot of bad ones, but mm-hmm. the ones that are done really well are the ones that stay true to the book. They don't try to change a bunch of stuff to try to make it their own like story adaptation. If you're going to take somebody like, Stephen King, you're going to take something like The Relic. Like, you need to just pretty much copy-paste. Focus more on the casting to see who can right. kind of fill those roles the way that you see them while you're reading the book. You know, it's it, you want the... Everybody, when they read a book, sees something different. So you got to find something that fits what you think everybody's view on it is and make it... They did that in this. It was, it was a solid adaptation. They went slow. They took their time. They were methodical with a lot of it. Um, and that made it kind of, you know, this this smart horror movie. We weren't focused too much about what was wrong, what was different than the book. It was more like, damn, they, you know, that's exactly what I thought when I was reading the book. That made, you know, so yeah, it's, it's solid adaptation. One thing I thought was good because the book in itself is kind of like a techno horror because there's a lot of science. There's a lot of science that goes into it. A lot of the, the science of genetics and and biology and and microbiology that goes into the book. And those are the, it's very much the difference like between Jurassic Park and you know Michael Crichton's Jurassic Park and Steven Spielberg's. A lot of the techno stuff, a lot of the the science gets kind of left behind because people want to see fucking dinosaurs. So <laughs> in this one, people want to see the monster, but they did not just dump and be like, you know, there's a monster, this is it. But they actually, what, what I what I really respect Hyams, uh, Peter Hyams, for what he jumped into, what he jumped into. But this was really smart because he recognized that that's what made the book strong was because it gets people thinking. It gets people in, not only emotionally involved with the characters because they like the characters, but also intellectually involved because... They have that investment that they're they're picking up information that's important to the plot. So they're learning along the way, and they're learning complicated stuff. And because they're so invested mentally in that respect, that leads to a more uh, more uh, or a deeper emotional investment into the horror elements as well. And Hyams kept that. He recognized the importance of that. In that, you can't just in a movie like this, you can't just scare people with a monster, big monster. You know, it's done a hundred times, but really get them intellectually involved. And see kind of like the behind the scenes, kind of like this is what goes on in your typical museum, especially one that has grants that they, you know, people doing research and R and D in the you know in the back, all the stuff that you don't normally see. And so we get to get into that world, and that draws us a little bit further into it, and allows it to be a little bit more, allow it allows it to hit a little bit different than your than your standard monster flick, which I dug about this one. He kept that intact, and surprisingly. This movie, the movie was developed by Frank Marshall and Kathleen Kennedy. 
before they started fucking up everything that they touched, you know. And so you know, it, there was a time when Marshall and Kennedy could actually, you know, develop a good movie. But, you know, apparently it's gone to their heads because now they just they just trash everything that they touch. So, yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep. Just not wrong. There's, you get into these movies that are like, uh, you know, kind of like, oh, we want the viewer to kind of, you know, you want them to put it together like that's just lazy fucking writing like like really like no don't don't make me sit there and think about what could be tie this up for me give me the fucking information i want to know what's going on um and yeah so so using that kind of science i'm actually i'm reading a book right now called neuromancer and it, it kind of like paved the way for this kind of techie you know matrixy dystopian mm. uh kind of writing and it, it's like you could Fuck that up with the movie. I don't even want them to try to touch it because you could take everything from the the fancy nerd stuff that I'm like, I'm putting pieces of this material together to like, okay, but what if you built this thing this way? And I want, I, you know, I don't want, I don't want that in in this movie. In a movie, it's different. I don't want to have to sit there and think about it. Show me. I, I'm, I'm doing it in my head when I'm reading to make the movie. You're making the movie. Show me. Take me there. Give me the point you know put it all in there i want to fucking i want to know what's going on so yeah this like you said it, it did a lot of you know it didn't leave out the shit that you need to know it didn't leave it to your imagination oh aaron reese says alex is reading my favorite book Very it's cool. so fucking awesome awesome it's, and i'm not even gonna ruin it the first line of that book opens up in a way that like just completely opens your mind and your senses to the whole story it's fucking fantastic if you haven't read it check it out one thing I, I, I really, I, I, another thing I really, really dug about this one is that uh, the relic I think marked kind of like it was part of the, the beginning journey when, when, when directors and writers were beginning to understand that audiences had a little bit more intelligence than they, especially in horror films, that they had a little bit more intelligence that they often were than you know more than they were often credited with because typically you, you in the early '90s and in the '80s and the '70s. Your horror was, you know, either was either classic monsters or it was, you know, slashers in that respect, or it was like ghosts and various stuff, Th things that you know, like with you know, with religious, you know, uh, religious, you know, informed stories. But in this respect, going, you know, with the science fiction bent, but we realized that we didn't need to just be like, oh, it's in space, so therefore it's science fiction. No, we realized uh, the directors and writers began to realize, kind of in the mid '90s, that we could have techno like legitimate technical jargon in there. That we could take legitimate science and blend it with science fiction elements and add a horror element or take a horror film and then add legitimate science into it that sometimes is often complex but audiences could grasp it because they're invested in the – because that emotional investment will lead to an investment in the plot and if your plot has this, people will pay more attention which then in turn leads to a greater emotional payoff when the horror elements hit. And people – I think studios – and directors, independent directors, begin to recognize this about the mid-90s, which is why movies like The Relic or movies like Virus, you know, even though, you know, they may not have performed as well as they expected, but they were kind of the beginning. It was like testing the waters. It's like, can we do this? Can we have scripts that get a little kind of, you know, jargony, that, you know, may talk about things that people don't, you know, like, you know, know about in their basic, you know, in their daily lives, but they can grasp it. And they dig it. And then that means that the more they get it now, the more they'll be looking forward to it because they want that emotional payoff. So I kind of see this as uh, the relic is kind of you know near the start. Is when a new kind of trend, when it kind of broke ground on that, yes, we can have intelligent horror in that respect. It doesn't all have to be stab, 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 
woo-woo, I'm possessed and shit, we can go and we can engage those other parts of our brain in respect to, you know, in, in addition to wanting to be scared and to see a really cool fucking monster, you know, one of the cool monsters that Stan Winston produced. Because I actually kind of dig the Cathoga and I just like, because you don't, I mean, you look at the unique nature of that. How many times have we seen a monster like that on screen? You know, like a like a not very often quadruped, quadrupedal, brain eating, you know, mm-hmm. thing. And I dug it. I, I dug what Stan Winston brought to it. I thought he was cool, and uh, uh, the things, he, the elements he added to it, made it a good, unique little monster. So you can look at it from both ways. I dug the science on it, even though it's rudimentary. But I like that they didn't treat us like we were idiots. Like he's like, no, nope, the science is too much. We're going to focus more on the monster and lean into the monster. No, let's lean into the science as well because it is a techno horror. That's that staying true to the to the source material, which is always risky. But I think they they hit it with this one as you know, as best they possibly could. Well, the thing is, is as long as people care about the characters and can get invested, it doesn't it doesn't necessarily matter how complex a story this story is. People will make the effort to go and watch. One of the great examples is like Inception, where people. A, co- a very complex film in terms of the sci-fi and multi-layers and all this other kind of stuff that makes sense. But people get invested into it. Another great example is like Dune. So like Dune, one of the most complicated universes mm-hmm. sci-fi has ever like created. And even in the books, the books just jump you right in. It's not like a, let's set up what all these houses are of Atreides and Harkins and we, and then we can guide you in. No, Frank Herbert is like, yeah, day one, we're just here. I hope you can catch up. But but the thing is, is you care. You care about Paul. You care about Leonardo DiCaprio um, in Inception. And you want to explore the world that they're in. And so when it comes to getting to the scientific part of it, if you can visually stun them and you can keep your audience engaged and you develop characters that the audience cares about Mm. the audience will hang in for the science they'll hang in for the complex world and especially if you have the payoff at the very end where it all comes together then it's worth it definitely and hey jason hyatt good to see you thanks so much for being here appreciate it and frayed edges as well i did see you thank you so much for being here bud appreciate it so yeah, I d- I dug this one. It's a fun little one, and because it it offers one of the most inter- one of the I think one of the inter- one of the more interesting Stan Winston monster creations. But something I want to ask the audience: What do you think is the best Stan Winston monster? Let us know down in the comments below, of course, here in the live chat or at weekendhorrorgmail.com, what you think is the best Stan Winston monster. Love to hear what y'all think. What do y'all think is the best? I mean, I'm leaning towards a thing right off the bat. I was going to say the thing. You can't really. <laughs> yeah, the thing about it's not like one creation or one or two creations. It's the many different creations because a thing can be anything. Well, well, well we say that was Stan, Stan Winston helped in that, but that was really Rob Bodden. But I mean, I'm not going to Rob did the work on that. I say that I'm in the camp that the thing was a Rob Bodden production. You know, Rob Bodden I'm. You cannot tell me Stan Winston just kind of sat on the sidelines and was like, "Oh, I can." No, build a no, I, 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 he helped, like he assisted, but remember, he was off doing another film at the time because he was working on something else. He assisted Rob Bodden because Rob Bodden worked underneath him. Um, he he uh, protégéed under. He's kind of kind of like Winston's protégé. Mm-hmm. But I give I give the thing to Rob Bodden, and I and I think you know with obviously with Stan Winston, I'm gonna have to go. 
with you know, as far as best monsters go, I'm gonna have to go with probably I dig the Predator. The Predator's one of my faves. Uh, Pumpkinhead. Pumpkin head. Pumpkinhead is fantastic. Head, yes. Yeah, and uh, Genova 28, Xenomorph, the, Xenomorph, the Terminator, yes. Gilman. Um, there's all, all kinds of shit, but I really like the Predator. I just dig the Predator because he he developed a monster. That could kick the shit out of Arnold Schwarzenegger, and I did. I just like that's fucking amazing. It's like because how many times? Because Arnold Schwarzenegger had been in fights in previous action movies. Ugh, 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 I'm getting beat up. He could do all that stuff, but he got his ass fucking handed to him in Predator, which was just great. You know, he Arnold Schwarzenegger like, oh fuck, I'm getting fucked up. Was like, <laughs> he hits him with a tree. He's like, bad idea. Bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> so. I love that, and that yeah, that came from Stan Winston's mind. I, I, I that's one of my favorites. Ooh, Angel Rivera brings up the Invisible Man, twenty twenty, fucking a. That was a good the, design, uh, the Invisible the Man, the T Rex from Jurassic Park. <laughs> you want to talk about how you introduce a monster in a movie, the T Rex, when it breaks through the fence? That's yeah, that was that's pretty fucking epic. Yeah. That was epic. You know, <laughs> you know, during during production of that, during production of Jurassic Park, they had to keep uh, wiping down the T Rex because because she kept sweating because it was her first film role in sixty five million years. But all right, Eugene, take us on to our next one. We're gonna go back in the way back machine. All right, we're going way back to Berserk. Which was released January eleventh, nineteen sixty-eight. Roll it. <laughs> it's the first time I've ever seen a questionnaire in a trailer. That's <laughs> <laughs> fucking amazing. <laughs> I need to see like more. They did the that. trailer so well because they left out all the kills and then they showed all of them at the end of the trailer. Just <laughs> 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 a saw a girl being ripped apart by the saw disturb you. <laughs> <laughs> just like lean into it. He has a Dova 28 is another example of showing way too much in the trailer. It absolutely was too much in the trailer because pretty much the whole movie. Sir Cab says that was all the kills. It absolutely <laughs> was. It was all the kills. <laughs> Listen, the studio wanted to make sure that the right audience saw the film. So they had to give everything out. And, you know, and, it, and it's wild because like right now there's currently like litigation going on about misleading trailers. Um, and because you know it, it's a silly situation, what's going on? Like a studio is actually a judge has ruled that a, that a studio can be sued for a mis for like a misleading trailer. But this mood, this trailer was so misleading because you're expecting like just like nonstop carnage in this movie, and it was anything but that. I'll let let's let uh, Eugene do the the breakdown on it, and <laughs> yeah, then we then we can go we can dive into it. So. Uh, directed by Jim O'Connolly, starring Joan Crawford, Ty Harden, Deanna Doors, Michael Gaw, and Judy Geeson. And basically, you have a traveling circus that murders start appearing constantly, and it's five kills. And shit gets real. Does it? Does it, though? Uh, would we a say bit, it? A bit. I mean, like, would we say it's it, real? It <laughs> I had more fun at the trailer than I did with the the rest of the movie. It, and it's wild because this was the this was the the next to last uh, movie that Joan Crawford did. 
So the next movie she, she would do would be in 1970. Um, this was, this movie came a few years after uh, whatever happened to Baby Jane, when she pretty much you know her career was you know was kind of trailing down. And I recognized, I realized that it was like at her age, she had to be kind of like taking it easy. And this absolutely was because she doesn't really do anything besides walk around and say lines. So essentially, Joan Crawford, though the lead in the film and the most prominently named actress, uh, I, you know, it's Joan Crawford in this because she was a legend. Um, like legitimately, she just kind of like she's the plot jeep. She just wanders around and just kind of drives everything. Not there even was a jeep, more like a sedan or something. Yeah, kind of like yeah. a sedan. Yeah, I'd agree with that. the The big thing about this one, and I thought was I thought was kind of interesting, was the the film in and of itself is doesn't really have it doesn't say much. And obviously, after in after watching it, there's not a lot that goes onto it. There's a whole lot of exposition, and there's like five. I think what shit. There's like four kills. Three? Three? Four? I think four kills. And there's a lot of time in between them. But the the choice to shoot this, and they shot this at um, a particular circus, which was used actually previously in, uh, I think it was called... Um, fucking hell, what was the name of that place? Yes, it was... Uh, um, oh, I had the name. I had the goddamn name. Uh, it was the name of the circus because the name of the circus was used before in Circus of Horrors and Circus of Horrors in 1960, and I can't remember the name of it. But the, and it was a massive, it was a massive circus um, that they used that they shot. There's like a four, uh, a four tent, a uh, what do they call them? The um, the masthead, like the the uh, the four masts, the the like the mast. You have like the big tent. So there were four big tops mm-hmm. in this circus. It was a massive circus that they utilized and. What I dug on this one is that the performances, uh, all of the uh, stunts and everything, and all the the, the wire action like are legitimately done by individuals who work with the circus. So they worked hand in hand. The production did, which I actually found when I'm going back and I'm thinking about it. There's like three or four kills in the movie, and it's like, wow, okay, so we've got that, and so but in a lot of like space in between, a lot of exposition, but not knowing what was going to happen. And setting it amongst a circus with a bunch of people doing some really kind of death-defying stuff. So I'm like, you know, and you're, you're wondering, is like, well, what could possibly happen? Like, so it actually, I found myself in kind of like in suspense throughout the entire time, anticipating, it's like, well, where could this go wrong? Where could this go? And I found myself kind of like, you know, making my own, making myself anxious by thinking of all the horrible things that could go wrong in a lot of the stunts that they were doing. But it, it never actually happened. Never so happens. it never actually goes down. <laughs> yeah, so and then of course, um, as far as that, you know, Joan, Joan Crawford and they're just chewing up the scenery, doing her thing, and you know, brings her usual uh, strength and appeal to it. <clears throat> but the you know, the script itself didn't have a lot. But it's a solid example of of a of a director and I would say a crew utilizing what they have in order to get the most out of it, overcoming the limitations because the script was very limiting. You know, Joan is only there to really deliver lines and move from scene to scene. There's not a lot of stunts. There's not a lot of extreme stuff in it. And it's just, you know, there's a couple of moments and they don't even show, like, the girl being ripped apart by a steel saw. You don't even see it. So it's like, oh, the saw's going in. She screams. And then we're, then we're you know, it's already post. The body's already removed and we're already, and we, you know, the cops are talking about it. So this is the 60s, you know, it was the late 60s. You know, you don't show that shit, you know, in films. So in this respect, I have to say, I kind of dug that they overcame those limitations to kind of let's set it in a circus and let's make it, you know, like, ah, high wire act. No, you know, no nets and shit like that. And I was like, I, I found that to be kind of impressive. 
definitely pushed it a lot farther than a lot of movies, like you said, in that time period. Go ahead. Oh, uh, Angel Rivera and Fred Edges got it. Uh, Billy Smart Circus. Billy Smart Circus, which went on for a long time. It was very, very popular. Even though I'm, you know, and and I will say this, going back and watching this, you know, you see the animals in it. And you're like, now that we know what we know now, that was kind of like rough watching Mm -hmm. some of the scenes. Because like, oh, I know what's going on behind the scenes there. That makes me sad, it's not but it, yeah, you know, it's, it's not, tough. Not at all. It's like it and the blatant misogyny. It's like holy fuck, dude! You just like just dudes just walking around talking to women like they're fucking trash. It's like, well, yeah, it was nineteen. I guess it was sixty eight. You know, just wasn't that awful? <laughs> we're just getting over that now, which is kind of sad. But yeah, you're, you're they they push the boundaries for sure. They upsold it a lot in the trailer. And I think the trailer was actually probably like supposed to be more a part of the whole adventure. It's not like a hey, come preview this movie. This is like this is part of it. You get into it, you're excited to see it, and they they come in at a at a level, and then you kind of just ride that level out till the end of the movie. It's not really a huge disappointment because, like you said, they did things that were different than a lot of the movies at that time. But it still was just what you saw. Like that was that was pretty much it. So. They drew you in like a circus does with all the big colorful lights and sounds and they get you in there and then you leave. And like you said, yeah, you know what they're really doing behind the scenes. It's kind of sad. Yeah, it was it was a little distracting. Yeah. But, you know, I, I wanted to see it because it has Joan Crawford in it. And right. I'm, I've always been a big fan. I'm, I'll forever be a fan of Joan Crawford because she's she can be creepy as fuck. But what she needs to be, she can be authoritative. She can she I mean, she's she's a presence in and of you know, just just being there. She, I mean, even something as simple as this is it's like a simplistic role as this. All I do is I memorize lines, just deliver lines. All good, not a problem. Yeah. And so I dug what she brought to it. Um, the other big reason why I wanted to, I kind of talk about this one is because there was a trend that I think um, that I know, I know a lot, of, probably a lot of people in the live audience, but people may not may not recognize. But the, the the idea, the writing idea in a particular movie like this, and it was wild to kind of see Joan Crawford. A legendary actress, at the, a legend already when she did this film, banking totally on her name, still playing roles, and how the writing trend was still there of tr- basically writing powerful women as villainous roles, as essentially they come off as villainous. Because that's the whole that's the whole red herring in the deal. It's like, is she the one behind the murders? And there was some smart stuff, like you know when she when the the killer is shown killing him with the killing Michael Goff, who is fucking Alfred. That kind of blew my mind. I was like, wait, that's Alfred and Batman. But when, when he gets the spike through his head, the killer's wearing black gloves. Then next we see Joan Crawford. She's running back to her trailer, and she has black gloves on. I was like, oh, that was smart. But it's a red herring in that respect because, you know, we find out that later on it's her daughter. But the, the whole big thing it was like all the women, all the strong, independent women are written as, written as villains. They're villainous. Because they they break beyond, or they they are not what men expect them to be. They don't act like men, like males or men expect them to act. And whenever a man tries to assert his dominance and she stands up to him, then it quickly assert you know gets into violence. That respect, you know, he's got to put his hands on her to, to get her to, to get her you know in control, or he's got to yell in her face. And I noticed that that was uh, if you go back and you look at other films all the time, that was a common thing. In strong, independent women were written, but they were they were usually bad guys or they were femme fatales. Or they were red herrings like this. They come off this way. They are villainous, but they're not the villain of the piece. 
And I noticed that was like a very, I mean, a trend at the time, obviously the late 60s in that respect. Yeah, I mean, obviously coming from the late 60s, you have to think in terms of the people writing these. Most of these are, they're men. Um, probably, maybe like I said, you had bad experience with women. And also at the time, the people writing movies were few and far in between. It's not like somebody who can download a program off the internet. You write your own movie, get a little money behind it and make it. These were studios. It was a very small, small group of people. And it really didn't take until you started getting more female writers and also more male writers that were sympathetic. Because one of the things with like James Cameron, James Cameron had a very close relationship with his mother who was a huge influence. So when you're crafting a character like, for example, Ellen Ripley, you craft it with care. It wanted to be strong and uplifting and have a positive experience with a strong female role. That was not really the case 10 years before Alien came out. That was the, oh, I should be able to do this. And if I can't, then obviously uh, then obviously she's bad. Yeah. And it's just, it's a small, it's the gatekeepers, basically. The small gatekeepers, yeah. that, that's kind of how they saw it. And it's interesting that you bring up Alien. And um, I think think we're all going to kind of agree on this one. Even though Ellen Ripley, you know, one of the one of the great, you know, strong, powerful, take charge kind of, you know, one of the one of the legendary, you know, uh, women of horror. Ellen Ripley was was fantastic. We hold her up as an icon. But even then, because because that was nineteen seventy eight, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, seventy nine. I can't believe I'm spacing on that. Seventy nine. I want to. See. Or 78. Was I right on my first one? Uh, anyway, but either way, late 70s, this is late 60s. So Berserk was late 60s, Alien was late 70s. Even then, a 10 years difference to get to the point where we could put a, put a woman in that female, in that lead, in that lead, take charge, It's she's the one who's going to solve the problem, she's the one who's going to save the day, blast the alien out the fucking airlock, she's the one who's going to handle it. But, even then... They had to write her. Uh, they, they literally wrote her off as a. They wrote her as a bitch, and they had other characters indicate that they did not like her kind of take charge attitude. That they, these are the rules. Like like the whole like if they listened to if they listened to her, the movie never would have taken place. But so even then, ten years later, she still had to be written a specific way. It wasn't until Aliens, when James Cameron came in and to, you know, took the character, and then we see not only. The hard-nosed, badass action hero that she is, but also the vulnerable mother uh, protecting her child, mama bear kind of thing, where she, yes, she's like, yeah, she's a hard-ass, but she's also a mom. And we get that as well in Terminator 2. So Cameron, you can see Cameron's effect on that, because first we see Linda Hamilton, and kind of like, oh, I'm weak, and oh, I'm running around like this, well, in Terminator, but in Terminator 2, she's the badass mama bear who is vulnerable with her child, but also will do anything she can to protect him. So I love that Cameron brought that. Because even though Ridley Scott broke ground and be like, fuck no, the hero of this piece is a woman, and she's going to go out there and kick fucking ass, and that is what she's going to do. They still had to kind of ease us into that transition. And it's... I. I could agree a little bit more, except for the fact, like, the audience has that information about the, oh, it's like, no, this is actually a dangerous creature, despite the fact that they weren't believing. So I can understand having, like, the crew members kind of see her as a bitch. And she is, 
she's not perfect as a character by any means. That's what. <laughs> ma- well, no, that's what makes her a great character. No, sorry, it was what Jeremy Duncan said. It says that wasn't Sigourney Weaver. Remember, that's Jennifer Lawrence. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> you talk about someone who's like, you know, I'm, I just woke up one day. So I'm going to shoot my career in the foot. It's like, what the fuck, dude? It's like. I can't. I don't even know how to. I don't even know how to address. I, we'll just let the absurdity of what she did just sit right there. Because okay, so was, I'm apparently missing something because I didn't know you didn't hear about this. Oh man, I've been living under a rock. Apparently, <laughs> what are we talking about, Jennifer Lawrence? Yes, Jennifer Lawrence's comment on. Oh, I can't believe we're gonna go. Over, we're gonna go over this. So Jennifer Lawrence. Um, uh, oh, Jennifer Lawrence action comment. So. She sparked backlash. Uh, what was what was it? I want to find her actual quote. Um, the actual quote. Uh, I don't want to see. I don't want to hear her clarification. Oh, she said Jennifer Lawrence had said that she was uh, that uh, nobody. You know, her quote was nobody had ever put a woman in the lead of an action movie before The Hunger Games. Yeah, I saw that. I and mean... now she's trying to spin it off that it, it wasn't her fault that that's what she was told. And I'm like. You got in the movie fucking industry and you don't know anything about goddamn movies? It's like, you You've never seer? seen Alien. You've never seen Alien. Okay. Or, ter- or Terminator. Okay. Terminator. And I'm, 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 that's fine. She's wrong. But... <laughs> I, I, no, she's wrong. But as somebody who... Because I teach part-time at a film school. So these are supposed to be the cinephiles. These are supposed to be the movie... Like These are the filmmakers behind us that are trying to break an industry and you're studying and stuff like that. Ain't gonna be surprised how many have never heard of Raiders of the Lost Ark, Star Wars. <laughs> like, a, a, just a lot of those movies. You will be surprised. So I'm not, she's wrong. She's absolutely, positively wrong. But at the same time, maybe she's never seen Aliens. That's fair. That's Most fair. of my class probably I, hasn't seen Aliens. Just because I, most of your oh, class no. are a bunch of idiots. Oh, shit. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> what the hell are you doing here? Uh, I figured I'd come How did in, you get in here? on this party for a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> He's unfortunately an admin in the channel, so he can just pop into the fucking Dude, live stream whenever he wants. What the fuck is this shit? <laughs> I'm not even an admin. <laughs> <laughs> Oh boy! Oh, Here we go. <laughs> yes, Jeremy Duncan is correct. Linda Carter would put her in her fucking place. She absolutely would. It's like what the original Wonder Woman. Hell yes, she would. And good to see you. Uh, I saw that. Um, and the George head popped in. Good to see you, and the George head. Thanks so much for being here, bud. He's like, yeah, and that that was the one thing I that, that really kind of struck me was that uh, even at that time, 1968, Joan Crawford established herself, and I know. I have seen some comments in there about, you know, about Mommy Dearest and obviously Jones, you know, there was Jones problems with alcohol and of course the, you know, the the abuse that her daughter suffered. I, I'm aware of all of that. I'm just talking about the, 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 the lady herself. She was a legendary actress and she was, you know, she, she was captivating. She had a presence and that even she at this time, at this late stage in her career was forced to kind of deal with roles that villainized that that villainized powerful women because it's the only way they could really be depicted. Because I mean, this is you know I think even if you look at like Psycho 1960, which was eight years before this, Marion Crane was a was a strong woman who decided to you know forge her own path and do her own thing and take charge of her life, and she did it by robbing her employer and then getting victimized by Norman Bates. 
So bad women, bad women come to bad ends or strong women who buck the system come to bad ends. And that was kind of like the, the mentality at the time. And it was just a reminder of that. It was like, and not, and not to mention the blatant misogyny that kind of runs through it and how people are just, you know, disrespected. But I was surprised because very little disrespect to the kind of Victorian style freak show members that were there the bearded lady and the strong man and the skeleton man and the uh, and the dwarf that was running around no disrespect to any of them they all held their own that's fantastic that's because but you, you don't disrespect the bearded lady <laughs> whip your but ass. but so but all but there's nothing but respect and nothing but kindness directed to all of these individuals but especially this is only like you know because you know freaks was 1932 and you're looking at this respect, it's like, oh, wow. So all of the freaks get more respect and get more, uh, get the, you know, positive screen time. They're conveyed as positive characters, but not Joan Crawford, who's conveyed as a villainous, you know, the villainous, you know, ice queen that she is for running. this. You could see some inspiration that Jessica, that Jessica Lange took from the, took from the character. Jessica Lange in American Horror Story um, for, uh, for Car- uh, Carnival? carnival like season four yeah um she took a lot of inspiration uh from this character from joan crawford's performance i can see a lot of parallels between the two between well, elsa he, and what i actually i want to want to bring up is the fact that is is the to basically to do something out of the norm does a woman at that time period does she have to be bitchy if you take somebody like um gone with the wind with vivian lay who i mean she just her character scarlett o'hare was like i'm gonna do what i want but she becomes a she becomes a memorable character if you take say somebody in history like elizabeth the first who decided well i'm gonna marry england because screw everybody else and a lot of nobles saw that as a bitchy move but it helped her retain power so it's maybe it's the male because of the male standpoint, a woman has to go to that point to exert herself to be a strong, a strong female character at right. that time. Maybe, maybe if you have to, we can definitely see the times have changed. And yes, I apologize. It was American Horror Story Freak Show, For sure. um, but I can definitely see that Jessica Lange's Elsa took a lot of parallels from Joan Crawford's character here in this from the uh, from uh, Monica Rivers. I thought I could see a lot of parallels. Other than the fact that, you know, Monica Rivers doesn't sing, but, you know, they didn't stop this movie from having a musical number because that's what movies did, <laughs> you know, back then. Had a musical number, which I thought was, this is so out of place. <laughs> but, hey, man, it's a different time. Different time, different place. <laughs> but it's interesting to see where it's come from, where powerful women characters are conveyed, how they're conveyed now, and how they were once conveyed. And you can kind of see the metamorphosis as, you know, to the times changed. And we begin to, you know, representation and being viewed differently and being written differently. And now we have, you know, we've gone from just the final girl who is, you know, is chaste and virtuous. And that's the reason she survives to know she's a bad bitch and she's going to uh, throw down everything to protect those she loves. And she's going to kick, kick absolute ass, which I dig, which is in the relic, which is what drew Penelope Ann Miller to the role. Because she liked the idea of not just a strong woman who can hold her own, but a smart woman. You know who drives who drives the intelligence of the plot. So as opposed to like the detective who is really good at being a cop, but is you know science is not really his thing. And I liked that. So that's what drew her to that role. So we can see how times have changed. Absolutely have. Well, I want to I want to ask the audience, what is the scariest Joan Crawford role? 
What is the scariest Joan Crawford role? Real life. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, it's so wild, yo, because her, you know, you know, she's pretty much she started as a flapper, you know, back right. in the twenties, and that's where she that her that was kind of her claim to fame. What, what kind of was her breakthrough? Was she was uh, such an excellent flapper? Um, wild thing that she was a flapper girl, you know, when you see her in her older roles. Um, Mommy Dear was pretty dead. Whatever happened to Baby Jane was pretty fucking insane. That was pretty nuts. Yeah. <laughs> One of her better movies was uh, Trog. That was like her last film, wasn't it? I think it. I think it was. I guess it would have been, huh? Yeah. I'm pretty sure. What was it 1970? Baby Jane came before Berserk. Yeah, 1970. She did Trog. Yeah. Trog. Yeah. It was pretty good. I thought. Yeah, she wound up, you know, you know, doing a lot of. I think because of her infamy, she wound up doing a lot of thrillers in her later days, and kind of yeah. just being the same with because she's got that kind of presence that Betty Davis had. Um, although, you know, they, both of them can go kind of. They had kind of like that. That kind of I to do that eye look that they have. Um, but yeah, it's like I would say whatever happened to Baby Jane was pretty fucking crazy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was a good one. All right. Well, definitely let us know down in the comments below or weekendhorrorgmail.com. Which role of Joan Crawford did you think was the scariest? Love to hear what you think. Yes, Aaron Reese, those eyes just stare into my soul. <laughs> my <laughs> nightmares. That's right. Jeremy Duncan's like, Betty Page was more tame than Joan. She absolutely was. You know, Joan was, <laughs> no wire hangers. She was like, what the fuck? Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> oh she, was a, she was a wild one. <laughs> All right. Well, we got one film left. Alex, close us out. We do. We'll go simple. We've done a lot of smartphones, you know, comedy horrors. We're just going to go real nice and simple with uh, Body Snatchers. Came out January 14th, 1994. Just, just fantastic. <laughs> it's real to be uh, uh, All right. So this is Body Snatchers. This was written and direct well there was a couple writers was jack finney uh raymond i'll fuck his last name sisteri uh mary cohen directed by abel ferreira this was starring gabriel anwar meg tilly terry kinney riley murphy um billy worth was in this and then you saw forrest whitaker and of course the legend rod of the army uh this just i say simple because it was plain and simple um a teenage girl and her dad discover that aliens are taking over people and they have to just try to fight their way out there's really no other point it's pretty much but, it uh, yeah it's, it's an adaptation yeah, it's, of invasion of the body snatchers yeah yeah mm -hmm. it's it was it was very simple but it was done really well um for 94 93 i think is when the original first started showing up but um yeah no it was i, I thought this one going back and watching it i was like okay yeah it holds up i guess i never really had any negative feelings about this movie Okay, so I'm I'm noticing this. I, I know where I, something I wanted to dig is that one thing I really really talked about the film was it's, it was the cinematography with some unique choices within the cinematography, and I think that that was it, and obviously this has the Abel Ferrara feel all over. So we've talked about Abel Ferrara and his career. Um, we talked about him before because he directed Driller Killer, and I can see his is his style is all over this in the way, especially in the uh, the two uh, Eugene. Uh, remind me what the name of that is when they have. Um, 
two focuses when they have the focus of what's going in the background and they split the screen and the focus is up there in the front. Are you talking about when they rack focus? Yeah, well, it's, it's kind of like well, you have two you have two things going on. You have action going on in the background and mm -hmm. action going on in the foreground, but both of them are in focus at the same time. Oh, just yeah, that's just like a wide depth of field, basically. Okay, so they, yeah. when they do that effect, and Abel and Ferrari use that a lot in order to convey something really, really tight with a really, really close up to the audience, and then something going on in the background far away. And you notice that he uses that a lot. So he'll convey, and and with something interesting that he would, uh, I think, uh, was kind of a cinema uh, a cinematography clue that is in there, very similar to like the eye shine in the thing, is that individuals who were already taken over were conveyed in uh in odd in odd angles when they were not the focus of the scene itself so you would have scenes when gabrielle anwar was the focus of the moment but then you would have like when she's driving the jeep with her dad and her dad and she's looking at her dad and he is just kind of off frame but not really typically you'd be like well that's weird why is he keeping him in frame when we're just seeing a piece of him but the piece of him that we can see is oddly angled compared to her, which I think was a little clue that Ferrara was leaving in from a cinematography standpoint to kind of indicate who was potentially, who was already taken over and who wasn't. So I found that to be really intriguing, and I got that, but not to mention his wide depth of field when we have action going here where we see somebody re reacting to something to action that's going on in the background and the people in the background are not aware of what's going on in the foreground. And I like how we did that a lot. So there's a good, it was smartly shot, which I thought was, which is intriguing. I thought that was good. Not to mention some of the acting I thought we, yeah, was solid. Uh, Gabrielle Anwar, I, I absolutely love. I loved her. You know, I first came, uh, kind of like, came became aware of her in Burn Notice. And this is one of her earliest roles. Um, and I think she's just great. But Meg Tilly, uh, who doesn't get as much kind of, you know, I would say spotlight as her sister Jennifer Tilly does. But even though Jennifer Tilly was her body double in the scene when she comes out of the closet, which I thought was cool because Jennifer's always been okay with doing nudity and Meg doesn't want to do it. But Meg can do fucking creepy so well because she's a phenomenal actress. And so I love that, you know, bringing Meg Tilly in and she was fantastic. And everybody, I thought everybody was in that the whole film was very, very serviceable. That's yeah, a good word for it. that's a good word for it. Service. But one thing I noticed is that there's not a lot of love for this in the live chat. So, and yeah, Meg Tilly is freaking hot as well. Both her and her sister are freaking hot. But I think it was because this is a remake of a remake, and a lot of people prefer the uh, the Donald Sutherland one. And but I think on this one, because we're already I familiar, I wouldn't say this is a remake of the Donald a remake of a remake. I think this is a remake of the original, right? Because there's not a whole lot of call to the Donald Sutherland. Oh, wait, a remake of the a remake of the um, of the body of, of the, ori the original yeah. one. Yeah, this is more call with, with Kevin McCarthy. Movie. Exactly. Right, yeah. okay. So, and uh, that, that's why, but even though, in, 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 if it is a remake of that original one, I like what Abel brought to it, because I think in his mind, he was like, we can't just, like, remake the original. And, of course, there was Donald Sutherland's one, which is where the, like, the pointing and the screaming comes from and all that shit. But I, what I dug is that he brought a new style. He, he brought his style, his unique style of shooting to it, which is I think is where the saving graces of the film is, because we get that kind of gritty... Um, uh, well, I don't even know how to how to how to like word that. He's got. For, I know that Aaron Aaron uh, Aaron was originally slated to be on this episode because he he knows Ferrara's work like the back of his hand, and so I can see his style in that. And I thought it brought a, a level of nuance to the a level of creepiness to this movie 
that the previous ones really didn't have. So it just goes to show the importance of how you shoot the film, not just what you're shooting. Yeah, and see, that's, that's the thing. It's getting to the subconscious level. Uh, it's the little nuances, the little things that the audience doesn't necessarily pick up on, but it's like, it's just off. Oh, off. one of the things we talk about a lot of times you see in films is you'll take a very wide-angle lens and then show a close-up in a wide-angle lens. What it does is it kind of compresses somebody a little bit. It feels off. The spatial awareness doesn't feel right. right. And it's something that's so subtle, so little. But by doing something like that, it makes you just uneasy. And these, these, things, these are great things. The audience doesn't pick up on it. You know, where the audience doesn't consciously pick up on it. I think that's what he was conveying there is because the differences between the pod people, between the, re- the the replacements and their original ones, they walk around and they, they can kind of pass as human. But there are little differences. Obviously, the lack of the lack of the lack of affectation, you can instantly tell they, they don't seem like they feel anything, but they can mimic it. But it's just like why there's a phenomenon of why people uh kind of have the hair go up on the back of the neck when they're around a psychopath. So there is an kind of an, an instinctual thing that human beings have where they're kind of aware of predators. And so there's that it, it's it's a it's a literally tied into our pattern recognition. We recognize aberrant behavior in other people, the little things, the little you know things that say, say that person's not acting right. And so in this one, that's what the replicants, that's what the pod people are doing. They're not acting exactly human. So how they're conveyed on screen is really, really important. And so he was doing that by saying, this little thing is off about them. And that's what, and so you have this kind of unsettling feeling throughout the whole thing is you don't know who is who. And that's, instead of being, you know, totally portrayed by the, by the actor's performances, he allowed the camera to do a lot of that work for him. And be like, it is kind of like uh, shooting your villains in Dutch angles, which is a good way to convey, or like you know how comic books used to do that. Villains, you know, they're the way they view the world is all skewed, which is why they're villains. So a way to convey that in films is to shoot in Dutch angles, which allows you to say, oh, this is the villain. This is, he views the world through a skewed perspective, and that's why heroes are shot head on and villains are shot at angles. This kind of did that same thing, only very nuanced. And I, it was very slight. And you kind of have to be aware of it. But there's something, even though you're not aware of it, it does create that dread. That kind of like, there's something uneasy about the situation. And I dug that. As a, and then opposed to, you know, the, the the creepiness of the things coming through and, you know, replicating people and making copies of them. And thinking, oh, Gabriel Anwar is, oh, the body of a goddess. I'll just say that. <laughs> she does. I mean, she does. The Snatchers knew what they were after. It's a freaking, just a, the body of a Greek goddess. I swear. But I really dug this one. I dug that it was it was subdued and um, yeah. You know, was, uh, I think it, it would kind of be an homage to what was originally created to the to the original story by um, fucking uh, uh, Finney by uh, I remember. Remember his fucking Don? Oh no, no the the, the original Finney novel. If I remember correctly, it was Finney. Yes. Oh, I'm. I Johnny, you probably know, right? What was that? 
Yeah, Jack Finney. The Jack Finney's real. I think it was kind of an homage to that. Kind of an homage oh, to the story. Yeah, Jack Finney. Yeah, Jack Finney. And so I thought, I, I felt, I, I dug it. I really, really enjoyed it. And I enjoyed what the actors brought to it. And it was, you know, super creepy. And I think it was Ferrara's take on that that was really, really important. But something that was interesting and I think uh, deserves a little bit of digging into is why this movie, why this story, the concept, whether you've got Finney's uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers or you've got Heinlein's The Puppet Masters, this idea, but it continuously gets remade. I mean, even I think the most recent one was, uh, one of them was oh, there's, uh, Daniel Craig and Nicole Kidman did Invasion. So this thing yeah. is getting remade over and over and over again. The idea of people coming in replacing people. You know, there's a, a Warner Brothers is doing a uh, Invasion of Body Snatchers remake, or they were talking about it. So there's something That's indelible terrible. about this about this concept that well, really speaks idea. to us. It's the idea, like so. The original, you go back way back when in the 50s, that was made. Uh, they were talking about uh, the uh, red, um, the red scare, yeah. red scare, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the invasion of communism and everything. From that, all these films, generally speaking, that's kind of where they're where they're looking at. Like it's this is some sort of new invasion of some idealism that we don't particularly care for. And and plus, on top of that, in terms of fighting an enemy, it's hard finding an enemy that's already infiltrated. Right, that it's part of your family. That it's True. when you think of some monster or creature from outside or zombies or something like that. It's a, and even a zombie, a zombie can take over a family member, but then they're usually like, they're dead, they're mutilated, so forth and so forth, versus like coming home from work. An average day, you come home from work to like your wife and kids, and they've been taken over. And it's hard, it's hard to defend against that because you don't see it coming. That's what's so hard about it. You don't see it coming. Um, when uh, speaking of talking about zombies, MIT did a scenario of what if you had like Zack Snyder's fast moving zombies, would they actually take over the world or not? And most people would die within the first two weeks because they wouldn't know what's happening, right? Because they do surprise you, you would just walk in your house and all of a sudden they would just attack you, you wouldn't even see it coming. That's what's scary about it. Aaron, Aaron Reese brings up, it's the inability to know who to trust that makes it powerful. That's mm -hmm. right. As, 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 you know, McCready said in the thing, don't know who to trust anymore. And we're all very tired. <laughs> yes, we are very tired. But yeah, I, that's, I think it's, it's that idea, that idea that the enemy is already within and the inability to tell, because, you know, you know, you have that inherent trust that's already built and they're preying upon that trust by taking over who you, you know, the and I the original sense of where they came from was like communists could be everywhere that they could even be members of your own family. Everybody keep an eye out, you know. The commie, the commies around every corner coming to you know strip us of our democracy and strip everybody of their of their ind their individuality and bring you know bring us all into the the hammer of uh, of uh, communistic socialism. And I understand that. I get the why that it kind of inspired that. I think we're beyond that at this point. And uh, well, it comes no, down it's more so about idealism infecting your loved ones, right? So, yes, when you're talking about the original and the the Red Scare and like you know, communism could be everywhere. It was more so you need to be careful with your family, your own your own loved ones, because they could be easily influenced by 
whatever this particular one being you know communism but it could be any number of things you know um it could go generally speaking it's been something that had to do politically politically speaking it's always been politics with these particular films but yeah i think at this point in time now being that we're so far removed from the originals is that we have this idea this this sense it's more of a philosophical concept now which it, it it's an existential threat is what it is is that what you are and what what who you are can be taken from you and replaced you know with you know without you even knowing it you just go to sleep and then one and then you're just gone and so it combines two kind of horrors that yeah death is around the corner and you could go at any time so there's that existential dread that yeah one day you could just go to sleep and then you just will never wake up and then you're just gone but the idea is also that you go to sleep and then something else takes you and you're gone but it's still running around so everything about you has been stripped away and then you have that kind of fear is like well is there any memory left is there any concept of you that kind of goes with the transference and you're kind of riding backseat to this entity that's just running around in your body it's and it provides a kind of existential fear that uh, I think was pervaded very well, extremely well in uh, Ferrara's version. I think it's what he doubled down on was that was that kind of like that creeping dread, almost Lovecraftian in its depiction. Whereas the Donald Sutherland one was more about you know r- you know running from those trying to take you. There was there was the, the threat was a little bit more external externalized in the Donald Sutherland one and the Kevin McCarthy one. Whereas I think Abel was smartly went after, what about the internal fear, the internal dread? You know, where you, you got to like look at things and try to suss things out and you don't know who to trust and what's going on. I like that he that he took that, especially conveyed in the sequence when the little boy is running after the helicopter and jumps the helicopter and is like, ah, oh, no, no, we know you, that's not good. <laughs> and then, yeah, and then nope. she's got to pitch no. the little shit out the fucking side. <laughs> it's like, damn, you're going for broke here. And no, imagine, okay. uh, imagine Eugene. Do you think that whole sequence with the base and all the hardware was exp- that looked expensive? Uh, most of it is probably old stuff, old rundown, and a lot of old military gear that's rundown. It's pretty cheap. Like as the government's using it, it's like top, it's top dollar. Um, and then once the government moves on, because a lot of that stuff's kind of older looking. And even, I'm talking about older for like '94. Oh, okay. um, you get that stuff cheap. The government has like warehouses and salvage yards of like fighter planes and radios and helicopters and and uh, some of that stuff. You can get a trailer. Uh, if you can get a trailer and maybe a couple grand, you can get yourself one of those helicopters. And shit, what, what are we doing? What are we doing with our lives? <laughs> <laughs> I apologize, man. I, I, you're right. You have uh, sarcasm. Says military surplus is cheap stuff. Yep. I was like, what were you about to say, Alex? I apologize. I interrupted. No, you're good. You were talking about how this, this kind of, you know, the, the you're talking about the Red Scare and how this is kind of like a time piece where it's like, you know, we're kind of out of that now. I'd say now would be the perfect time to kind of reinvent the body snatchers. So you got stuff like like social media, um, influence from like the digital world. And with all these like kind of more digital horror movies coming out, I think there's something to say. And like, I know there was one, it was, um, we're all going to the world's fair, which is kind of like a watch a video and turn into something else, go psychotic, you know, gets into your head. So I think maybe- Ooh, like the signals. Yeah, like the signal, you know, something that it's something that you could, it's something that you could adapt to today's world using something 
you know, just like social media, it's, it's the same thing. The red scare, it's all, it's all scare tactics and they do it now digitally on a mass scale. So I think there's something to say about, you know, you're talking about zombies, Eugene, how you did this study where it's like, okay, people wouldn't know for a couple of weeks. Now people would know right away because you've got, you've got live streaming, you've got, you know, everything is right there in your face all the time. And to have that used against you and then in a way that could alter a person remotely, I think could be a good kind of take on this now. It's kind of funny you say that because you're, <clears throat> as you were getting into that, I, I thought about another movie that roundabout does make a, a call to the invasion of the body snatchers type, and that's Annihilation. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 You could, yeah, you could you definitely tie that in. Yeah. And sarcasm brings up pulse <laughs> as well. The kind of thing that, uh, the thing that, um, t- ties us all together that, that, because uh, I, I would say the best way to attack, you know, if, if aliens were to show up would be to just take out the internet, would be the, because we're all interconnected. That the internet connects us all and it's so integrated in everything. You take out the internet and we're going to, we'll be in a world of hurt because we're so dependent upon it. So, you know, knowing that there's that connectivity that can be exploited against us and, you know, and especially when oh, the Nova brings up the faculty, the faculty as well is another version of them coming in and, you know, aliens coming to sign for us. Yeah, this whole warring bullshit you got going on. Nah, it could be so much better. Just just submit. Just just go to sleep. Don't do crank. All... <laughs> do what? No, no, no. Do crank. I'm sorry. The, that was the other one. Do crank. Don't do aliens. Do crank. That was <laughs> and the uh, and I. But I will say I dug Forrest Whitaker in his like this. Forrest Whitaker had just the, that awesome scene when he's in the room with Arlie Ermy and the other guys. And he's like freaking out with a gun and just like eating caffeine pills and she's like, <laughs> get away from me. Shit. I love what he brought to it. Um, there's a lot of good stuff I'd say in this particular uh, in this version of it. Uh, yeah, a lot of people like Cheddar right. It didn't get a lot of love. It didn't, I think, because of Ferrara's take on it. But I think Ferrara's take was important because it opened up new avenues of looking at the story that it's not just about, you know, the the inspiration of politics, not just the idea of, you know, like, you know, whatever it's trying to represent as a metaphor, but the idea of the existential threat of this. And I dug that it brought an old story and shined in kind of a new light on it, which I think was, I, th- I, I liked it. I enjoyed it. And it allows for better, for more storytelling. Which is always important as far as making movies. Hang on a second, Frank. That wasn't the that that wasn't the advice that I was giving. That was the advice that the faculty was giving. Okay, I didn't say do crank, not aliens. The faculty. That was a movie. They said do crank, not aliens. That oh, crank. you're having a chat with someone in the live chat. Sorry, yeah. Just a little Frank, disclaimer for the live chat. Oh, yeah, because yo, do do speed. Do speed. How are we gonna be? How are we gonna beat the aliens? Drugs, man. Drugs, man. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Sir Little Wolf. It does bring uh, does bring new meaning to the backdoor invasion and backdoor alien invasion. <laughs> I'm getting probed. <laughs> Fuck. Uh, all right. So let me ask the audience. We've kind of touched on the before, and could you adapt it now? What What do you think the best body snatcher type adaptation was the best which one was the best one was, I, and you can even bring in some of the new stuff like annihilation that's that was a good that was a good one johnny with uh that was the military with the shimmer yeah uh, the, the meteor yeah um 
Yeah. We're going to go all the way back to Invasion, or we're going to go back to, or not Invasion. Yeah, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Invasion was Nicole Kidman, right? The Invasion had Nicole Kidman and Daniel Craig. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, you, can even go, you can even go zombie. Like, it's, you know, you could do stuff like Shaun of the Dead, where it's like, he didn't want to. He didn't want to kill anybody that he knew, so he'd just tie him up and be like, yeah. or just you know, <laughs> keep the distance from him. Like, come on, Phil. Yeah. <laughs> what was he said? Oh, I can't believe he's like, what's it matter? He's going to be dead anyway, I and mean, that's not the point. <laughs> like, oh, he was already a zombie. Oh, thank God for that. <laughs> I have to go with. Uh, I think the the Donald Sutherland one, the nineteen seventy eight invasion of the Body Snatchers, was the best, and I think. Um, really, really set it up like at the end that whole the whole sequence with Sutherland, where you realize Sutherland's been taken over. Oh, the the, the big reveal! I think it was brilliantly done. So really, really smart stuff. Um, I dug that one. Great cast too. The whole movie. Oh no, yeah, everybody was in that fucking thing. Linda Cartwright, fucking Leonard Nimoy, Jeff Goldblum. Jeff Goldblum. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Brooke Adams, Donald Sutherland. Holy Jeff shit! There's a bunch. Yeah. It's a little bitty Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> That's like okay, going back and seeing that is like seeing Harrison Ford in Apocalypse Now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, or Lawrence Fishburne in Apocalypse Now. It's like Larry Fishburne was in the back when he was going by Larry Fishburne, and it was yeah. like he was in this movie. Shit, yeah, he was. For anybody in the Outsiders, just like Kevin Bacon, knock off Kevin Bacon from uh, what the hell is his name? Never mind. <laughs> oh, Fred Notch brings up the Arrival. Oh, Charlie, Charlie Sheen. Yeah. Yeah. Charlie Sheen, written by David Toohey. Yeah, David Toohey. Uh, uh, David Toohey, who also wrote Pitch Black. I like The Arrival. I think it's one of. I think it's Sheen's probably one of his best movies. I would have to go with. I have to go at least mention the Faculty. I love the Faculty when it mm. came out. I mean, I, I was probably right at that age group. Cause I think I was in eighth grade when that movie came out. Fuck but, you. <laughs> I was. I was. I was working at a Cinemark when that movie came out. Holy fuck! That was a long time ago. Damn. I was in eighth grade when this movie came out. You bastard. Well, I mean, at the very least, Alex was even born yet. <laughs> Alex was born yet. Sarcasm yeah. brings up they live. They live is good. Fucking a. I was six in '96. Leave me alone. Good to see you, Elizabeth fuck Sylvester. You. Elizabeth Sylvester, ordinary Jeff. Good to see you both. Thanks so much for being here. Yes, yes, Angel Vera. I am aging myself. I absolutely am. Oh, oh, and Aaron Reese says, Eugene, I know I don't have to point you to the similarities between Annihilation and Stalker. Very true. Very true. That Very was a good, that's a good Russian horror film. I like Stalker. See, this is a, I need to go back and rewatch Stalker because it's been a little bit since I've seen it. Uh, I did watch Annihilation recently again. That's such a good movie. It's such a good, it's such a good it's fucking good. movie. It really yeah, is. So much hate for no reason because people didn't like Natalie Portman, but... Natalie Portman's a fantastic actor. She was great. I, yeah. I'm not saying I agree with them. I think they're stupid. It's a good film. <laughs> they, they are. All right. Well, definitely let us know what you think is the best adaptation of the Body Snatcher story. Uh, let us know down in the comments below or, of course, at weekendhorror at gmail.com. And the George said, uh, says, Larry Fishburne sounds like the name of a guy who will replace your brakes for $20 in a five-pack of Bud Lights. It really kind of does. <laughs> it really does. All right. So, it is about that time. It is trivia time. I gave you the thing. I was hoping that you would play it. You have it you have it there, I, but I didn't have it queued up immediately. So, let's try it again. Wait. It wait, is wait. trivia time. 
<laughs> I've been replaced. But you have to be careful. You can't just hit play. Otherwise, it'll keep playing on lead yeah, right. repeat. So you have to actually turn it off. But yes. Uh, Elizabeth Sylvester would like to ask before we do trivia time say, is it, what's up with Alex's name? Is there a story to it? Well, when his mommy and his daddy got together one day, like, hey, we're going to have a pocket pool. Oh, sorry. Kind of. There's a there's a whiteboard at our at work where the IT guys will put up the soup of the day and it's always something ridiculous and today it was pocket sand and I laughed really hard so it's followed me all the way home. And pocket sand is a reference to King of the Hill because one of the, one of the characters which character what's the name of the character? Oh, was Boomhauer? No, 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 it was the uh, the uh, the uh, the the veg, Dale, the, right? yeah, Dale. The, the, it was the, Dale. The yeah, okay. Yeah, Dale. God, there was a, there was a joke that was made that Daryl Daryl carries around pocket sand. And it's literally just this little bag of sand in his pocket so that if he's ever accosted by somebody or somebody grabs him, he can just go, pocket sand, throw it in their face, and he can run away. (laughs) (laughs) Pocket sand. (laughs) My eyes. (laughs) Dale Gribble, that's right. So, pocket sand. So, all right, but it is trivia time. And so, get those Google fingers ready. I'm assuming uh, one of y'all has the live chat up. Uh Uh-huh. Awesome. Yes, Fantastic. Sure. So the first person to get this correct answer in the live chat will win a mystery prize from the Weekend Horror Store. What could it possibly be? I'm not going to tell you because then it wouldn't be a mystery anymore. A mystery. So be the first person to get the correct answer to this question in the live chat. You will win a mystery prize. The trivia question for tonight is written by Jack Finney. The Body Snatchers was originally serialized in what general interest magazine? Written by Jack Finney, The Body Snatchers was originally serialized in what general interest magazine? The first correct answer in the live chat gets a mystery prize from the Weekend Horror Store. Who's I got know, it? Who's no, got it? It's not Playboy. <laughs> Angel Rivera has it. Already got it. Angel Angel Rivera's got it. All right. Let me get that down. What is... Oh, there are more guesses coming in? (laughs) Yeah, a couple more guesses. Barely legal. (laughs) Barely legal. Oh, what the hell? God damn it, Aaron. Barely legal. Collier's Magazine. Yes, Sir Little Wolf's Collier's Magazine. I don't see the Playboy on there. No, I, I was trying to stop. Oh, you just said it yourself. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, it was Collier's Magazine, uh, which actually ran from like the late 1800s yeah, all the way up oh. to like yeah, for a long time before it went out, before it went out of publication. But it was originally serialized in Collier's Magazine. Uh, Denova 28 said Hustler. Nope. Incorrect. And then Tony Regime said Health and Efficiency. <laughs> yep. Uh, Travis Brown says, sounds like it would be perfect for one of EC's comics. It would, yeah, or maybe like, you know, like Weird Tales or some shit like that. Yeah. But, yep, first serialized in Collier's Magazine. (laughs) Aaron Reese says, Playboy has words in it? (laughs) What? It does. I only read it for the interviews. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, sure. Of course. Yeah, absolutely. I like what Larry Flint Flint said about Playboy Magazine. Was that? Are you going to finish that? or He made Hustler Magazine. Oh, Oh, gotcha. Oh, yep. Well, congratulations, Angel Rivera. We are going to get a mystery item from the the Weekend Horror Store directly to you. Congratulations again. Denova28 says BS Jail. What what was BS? 
oh, he's calling me BS on me reading Playboy. I actually do read the, the interview. The Playboy Playboy interviews are actually good. I know. I started reading the interviews after I read the after it was recommended that I check out the Playboy interview with Metallica. Yep, absolutely. I was gonna say I was just gonna say the um they have some very good journalists actually mm-hmm. working for they've always had good journalists working for Playboy. Um yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's always been an actual like great magazine. Like, like the really pictures in there, nobody really gives a shit about. I'm just be honest, okay? Look, they're all artsy fartsy and whatnot. And it was great back in like the '70s when people could only get Playboy and whatnot. And then you had shit like fucking Hustler. I checked it out. The only reason I, the only ones I ever looked at for those reasons was Charisma Carpenter and Mercedes McNabb because they were both on uh, Buffy and Angel. And they took their turns. They did their thing. And it was like, okay, cool. I, I, I got to see it. Because I've been watching them on TV for years. And I have to see it. The last one I think I ever really looked at was fucking China. Because <laughs> I was just oh, curious. <laughs> I was just, <laughs> how could you not be just, you know, morbidly curious? It was like, it's China. Uh, you know, no. I'm a wrestling fan. I have to see this. <laughs> you know, it's like, Do you know, it's like. Do you? It was like, it was like in the old, it was like Rotten.com back in the, you know, back in the 90s. Like, you had to see it. It's like, you had to see it to believe it. Faces of Death is like, do I want to watch this? Yes. Yes, you, you kind of want to watch this. Am I going to hate myself afterwards? Am I going to hate yes. Am I going to look at myself differently? Probably. You know, fucked up Faces of Death, like, <laughs> fucked me up. It fucked me up so bad. And then you find out, like, 20 years fucking later that it was all fake. Well, some of it was fake. Some of it, some, some of it was real. Most of it was fake. Yeah. But yeah, it was like... Yeah, oh, when the camera is zooming in and out really quickly and something like that. Like, oh my god! Oh my god. So, like, okay, and if you think I've just aged myself, I just brought up fucking Rotten.com. Yes, I, I really aged myself that bad. Hey, that was around yeah. when I was a teenager. Yeah, I remember Rotten.com. Oh, okay, well, the Faces of Death probably aged me as well. I remember the infomercials. Yeah, that was around too. <laughs> the in fucking the infomercials. Infomercials playing next to like Girls Gone Wild and shit. That's exactly. <laughs> Girls Gone Wild, but if that isn't your cup of tea, faces of death. <laughs> Angel Rivera says, uh, we sent a Week in Horror hoodie to her eldest son in Colorado. Uh, in Colorado. He loved it. Fucking awesome. 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 Thank Fantastic. You. Dig it. That, that Week in Horror hoodie is amazing. Especially in fucking Colorado, where it's cold as balls. This is true. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, that brings another episode of Weekend Horror to a close. Thank you all so much for joining us, and we truly hope you enjoyed the show. Join us next week when we look back at the legendary cult slasher, Madam, the rare Madman, Madam, the cult slasher, Madam. That's great. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you there's one already out there. I was going to say, I feel like there, if there's not one, there needs to be one. There needs to be one. Oh, <laughs> I had to correct that because there's good people that listen to like, wait, what was that movie? <laughs> Why am I watching a rom-com now? <laughs> so the madman, the rare Denzel Washington horror Fallen, Parasite Terror in Growth, and the strangely Topical, post-apocalyptic, the terror within. You almost said tropical. I almost you did. Almost did. Kill them with almost the coconut. Did. <laughs> that sounds like a tongue twister. There you go. <laughs> I, I swear to God, JL does this shit to you on purpose. Yeah, he does. <laughs> for more horror fun, be sure to follow us on all the socials for the daily splatter. 
your daily horror film recommendation. Remember, <laughs> remember, we're constantly being stalked by the cruelest of the faceless slashers, the algorithm. As you saw, As one of our saw. one of our trailers was a victim tonight. <laughs> Get killed by the algorithm. And you can help us defeat it by dropping a comment, liking, subscribing, or smashing the notification bell like that of a true third act final girl. Joshua Olson does all of our amazing artwork for the show, and his designs are incredible. Hit his store up at www.badsamurai.store. A massive shout out to all our amazing patrons who continue to help us make Weekend Horror the incredible success it has become. And if you like to and are able to support our production, you can too by enjoying, joining and enjoying the tasty benefits of one of our many Patreon tiers. But if Patreon is not your favorite stocking method, you can always support us directly through our PayPal. Links to everything, including our Discord community, where you can hang out with us, are in the description below. And remember, the goal is global horror domination, and we can't do it without you. Our amazing audience so pretty pleased with the hopes and dreams of an indie horror lovers everywhere on top go share the absolute fuck out of our little show thank you all for being the greatest audience a podcast could have i'm eugene i'm alex i'm jl and i'm fat guy <laughs> we'll see you next week and as always stay scared <laughs>